Hashem Naseh Benatzliach, Shil Torah, good to be in Miami, Baruch Hashem. We have another wonderful shiur prepared for you guys. Uh, the only thing is, I don't know about it yet. So I'm finding out as you are. Um, the um, shiurim, Baruch Hashem, we're continuing, we're, uh, we're at 129 in the series. Uh, each year, Baruch Hashem, Hashem gives us new things to say. It's... Um, to be honest with you, always amazes me uh, how much there's to say about each topic. And it's not the same thing. It's endless amount of Torah. You know, and uh, that's why it makes me laugh when people tell me, oh, yeah, yeah, I know a lot of Torah. So, oh, give me a chidush. Oh, I don't know. I don't know anything. You said, you know a lot of Torah. Give me a chidush. Give something. No? Don't be cheap. And the thing is, though, is that we don't realize sometimes that you're actually obligated to have chidushim. You're obligated to have chidushim sitting at the tip of your tongue at all times. You're obligated to have something prepared because that is actually part of the fight with the Satan. It's part of the fight with the Yetzirah that's going to come to you in different ways, whether it be your friends, or it be your uh, parents, or it be your uh, partner, or be your kids, or be your neighbor, or your boss, or so on. That's actually one of the things we learned from David Melech. Uh, how he uh, says to Hashem constantly, throughout the Tehilim, that he enjoyed just talking all about him. All day, that's all I talk about. I talk about Torah. But sometimes, what you thought you are going to say, doesn't come out. What is the light that's in my eyes for some reason? Um, sometimes the siyate dishmaya, the assistance from heaven that uh, you thought you're going to get, doesn't come when you thought. Sometimes. plan one thing, you say something else. Sometimes you uh, you have a question, the person doesn't know. One time a person comes to Rav Kanievsky, Shikhe, and uh, he says to him, Kvoda Rav, I have a pay package, a retirement package from the company. I worked for them for 30 years. And I'm retiring in uh, 10 months from now. And I figured I'd take this $350,000 I have, I saved up all my life. I'm going to get it from them. And uh, buy a house here in B'nai Bak. Nice, everything good. What do you think, Madarab? Madarab says to him, come back to me when you have the money. guy got worried. He says, what does he mean? What does the rabbi mean? What does he mean? I'm not going to get the money. What, does he know something? Maybe he has Ruch HaKodesh. He has Ruch HaKodesh. He knows maybe the, in the next 10 months the company is going to go bankrupt and then, then the stock market is going to crash to nothing and I'm not going to get the money. Whoa! Last 10 months of his career was a gain on. 
the guy Miskin, he's worried every day. What does the rabbi mean? What does he mean? How come he says, come to me when you get the money? I don't understand. Why? Why would he say such a thing? Why does he think I'm not going to get the money? These people are really honest. They're really nice to me. They're always saying hello. Why? Why is she looking at it that way? Oh, the guy all day, all night, he has stories in his head. He's torturing himself. Why? Because he takes the words of the rabbi and he says he has to mean something else. After 10 months are over, Bo Hashem, he retires. Shalom, shalom. Here's your check. That's it. He comes to the rabbi. He says, Kodahab, Kodahab, I got the money. Oh, Bo Hashem, good, good. So what do you think? Should I buy the house? Yes. That's it. Good. I don't understand. Kodahab. Why didn't you just tell me this 10 months ago? Because, oh, 10 months ago wasn't realistic. 10 months ago you didn't have the money in your hand, so Hashem didn't give me the answer in my head. 10 months ago I didn't have the answer in my head because it wasn't relevant. It wasn't relevant 10 months ago. Now you have the money, you ask me a question, immediately I knew the answer. Yes. Hashem gives you what you need and not necessarily what you want. That's how Siyat Bishmaya works. And sometimes you plan one thing, you get something else. But the secret is, we read it in Tefillah, Tom ve'yosher yitzeuni. David HaMelech says in Tehilim, innocence and honesty, that's what preserves me. What does it mean, innocence and honesty preserves me? Tom comes from the word tamim. Tamim, we read the first time the word tamim in the Torah in Parashat Noach. Ish tzadik tamim. Noach was tamim. Tamim can mean complete. It can mean complete. Complete with Hashem. Whatever Hashem says, he's completely all for it. No questions asked. But also in the English language, it means a little bit more in a sense that it means innocent. Innocent meaning, I'm just going to go along. I'm not going to ask any questions. Not just complete, because I have a lot of emunah, but what, I, what do I know? It's Hashem's world. What do I know? I'm going to tell him how to run his business. I'm going to come to your store and tell you how, what, where to put the chocolates. What do I know about chocolates or the, the, the grocery store? Nothing. What do I know about mufflers? Nothing. I can't go to your uh, shop and tell you, listen, you should put this muffler in this car and the other one. What do I know about mufflers? I barely know what it looks like. I just know it from the back of my car. What do I know? So you're going to go to Hashem and tell him what to do? Innocent. Innocent meaning you just go with the flow. Tamim tiyem Hashem. Be simple. Be complete with Hashem. That's one of the, one part of the secret. The other part is honesty. David Amedah says, Tom V'yoshel. Tom V'yoshel Yitzaruni. First, it's that I go with the flow. I go with whatever Hashem says. But I remain honest to the Torah. I remain honest with myself. I know when I fail. I know when I succeed. I'm not uh, lying to myself to say, no, no, it's Ratzon Hashem. What Ratzon Hashem? Yeah, you know, I wanted to go to the strip club. It's Ratzon Hashem. If Hashem didn't want me to go to such a place, He wouldn't let me. He would give me a heart attack on the way here. So obviously I'm with this girl now because uh, it's Ratzon Hashem. You know, people make stupid things like that. They, they lie, they steal, they rob, they, they, they kill, everything. No, it's Hashem. Hashem. If Hashem didn't want it to happen, it wouldn't happen. 
They blame Hashem for all the tsarot. For all the yetzarah, they blame Hashem. That's called Naval Birshut Torah. Despicable in the name of the Torah. David Amelot says the real secret is, Rabotai Karim, is you have to be honest. Honesty begins with yourself. Because if you're not honest with yourself, there's no such thing as honesty with anyone else. If you're going to lie to yourself, you're going to be, believe your own nonsense. There's no hope for you. No hope for you. I remember I used to have this kid, worked for me, kid, he was in his mid-30s at the time. I always, always call the people that work for me kids for some reason. Even though I was the youngest. It's very funny, I found them all immature, so I would call them kids. But um, that hasn't changed much, actually. I call you guys kids also when I talk about you guys to my wife. Yeah, the kid of yeah, this kid. Yeah, I always call you guys kids. Yeah, I just realized that. Ah, that's what happens when you feel like you're 900 years old. Anyway, Baruch Hashem. So, the, 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 the guy, he would tell people on the phone, it would always drive me crazy, how people could like literally like believe their own nonsense. But one time I saw it with my own eyes. He would tell the people on the phone that he's successful and he, uh, he has a private jet, he has a private boat and a private this. Eventually I had to fire him because I couldn't stand it. I, I can't stand liars. Even though it had nothing to do with the business itself, he wanted to impress people as if he's successful and therefore they're going to do business with him. And um, now initially I would tell him, why are you doing it? Oh no, because of this and that. I told him, stop doing it. And he didn't stop. He would try to do it quietly as if I didn't hear or I won't find out. Anyway, I realized that the more he said it, the more arrogant he became. Like the way he like carried himself. And I started realizing that the more he said it, the more he started believing his own nonsense. Like he actually started believing like he owns all this stuff. Like he actually started believing his own nonsense. Like he's this big deal. And I'm like, I said... Last week you made two hundred fifty dollars. Like what? What boat? What you can't even you can't even get a ticket for the boat. What boat do you own? And I never understood it, but that's what happens when we do things. We do with action. We take word. We take action on some things. We start believing it. This has a negative impact and a neg- and a positive impact on a person. You can use it as a negative to in a positive uh, way. In a negative way, like this guy, where you're literally feeding yourself lies and you believe it. No, 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 I'm good, I'm good. You know, people tell you, no, no, I'm okay, I'm okay. No, no, I already, I already learned this. I already learned this. What did you learn? You didn't come to the show. How do you know you learned it already? I, I, I already heard it. I already heard. What did you hear? I learned the Pirkei already in the Beknesset. Yeah, but maybe it's not the same thing. It's the same book, but maybe it's not the same teachings. It's, you know, Torah is endless. Sometimes people just, they're so stuck in their own way, they assume they know everything. They're danger to themselves. But you could also use it in a positive way. Like we talked about last night. One of the wonderful ways that a person can make themselves uh, happy is by giving themselves reinforcing encouragement of all the things they actually do have. Thanking Hashem, being grateful to Hashem for the things that you do have. And not just focus on the things you don't have. Once you start focusing on the things you have, you realize you really are rich. If you're alive, you're healthy, 
you have a roof over your head, you have somebody in your life that cares about you, you're already richer than most people in the world. Unfortunately, the Yetzirah is constantly in our ear trying to convince us to focus on the things we don't have. Yeah, you have a car, but it's not the car you want. You have a house, but look at the house your friend has. That's a house. And by the way, as soon as you get his house, like, yeah, it's a house for now. It's for now it's good. For now. Until you... And it never ends. So, a person needs to be innocent with Hashem and honest with himself. Innocent with himself and honest with Hashem. Same thing with both. Why? That's what preserves you. That's what preserves your relationship with Hashem Yidvarach through thick and thin. If you're not, if you're going to lie to yourself, your relationship is going to be based on a lie. You won't survive tough times. People that lie to, them, lie to themselves and pretend like they're tzaddikim, they pretend like everything is good, they already know everything, they already learned everything, they, they're, they're pretty much, they're just, they're at a stage of their life where they could just coast. Those people usually become the first one that, that become kufrim. As soon as there's a flat tire in their, in their journey, they're the first ones to throw Hashem under the bus. And that's why a lot of times you're going to see people fold under pressure. And people are surprised when people fold under pressure. But the reality is they've been folding the whole time. It's just that you didn't see it. You know, when you hear horrible stories like a, uh, this one that I heard about a year ago, actually two of them, two religious guys with a wife, in one case I think it was eight children, another one I think it was maybe five or six, the husband one day decided to just pick up and leave. Took all the money from the bank, emptied out the bank, and decided to go out with some non-Jewish girlfriend and left the, uh, left the, uh, left the family to for dead. And this is in Yerushalayim. It's not like it's, okay, you know what, if it happens in New York or it happens in California, you're surrounded by 400 million goyim, you're surrounded by Tum'ah, there's so much Yetzirah here, you don't even know if there's Yetzirah told. Fine, okay, you can, you can make a lot of excuses for America. It's Egypt after all. But I'm talking about the re- most religious neighborhood in Yerushalayim. You're surrounded by religious people. There's a shield Torah in every corner. There's, in every block, there's maybe 15 Bateknesset. There's more Bateknesset than people. How do you go off the derech over there? The truth is, Rabotai, is that people like that were never on the derech. They had the uniform. They went through the, the basics of, you know, Shachrit, Mincha, Arvi, the basics, regiment. No different than the people in the jungle. They're, they're customized to their rules. Some people get accustomed to the Jewish rules. But as soon as there was a flat tire in their, uh, in their journey, as soon as something didn't fit, as soon as something didn't work, as soon as something happened, that's it. That's why this Rasha Merusha, Yaron Yadan, this Shem Reshaim Yerkav, this guy that claims that he used to be a Rosh Kolen in, uh, in Israel many years ago, he became the number one kofel 
in Israel today. Probably one of the biggest ones in the world. And he claims that he used to be, he's coming from knowledge. He's coming from knowledge because he used to be a Rosh Kolen. So he says, I know, I know all these things. So that's why I'm telling you it's all nonsense. I left it all because it's all nonsense. And at least two people came to me in the last month asking me about him because he started translating his stuff to English. So to, to poison more people than a week. Well, Hashem, I already knew about this Rasha Merusha for already a few years and all of the tricks that he has. And first and foremost, his whole story starts with a lie. Number one, he was never a Rosh Kolel. He was never a Rosh Kolel. In fact, that's the, it's the exact opposite. One time, there was a job up for grabs to be the Rosh Kolel. And he didn't get it. Somebody that's much more qualified than him got the job. And he couldn't deal with it. Instead of being a normal human being, a winner, that works harder in order to get the job next time, what does he do? Act like a loser. What do losers do? They cry like crybabies. And they blame everybody else. That's what losers do. Losers in life, you're always going to notice, there's always a loser in every room. Why? Because they always blame everybody else. What do winners do? How come, how come there's winners and there's losers in the world? Both have, can have talent. Talent has nothing to do with whether you're a winner or a loser, by the way. I remember when I was a kid, I was on a football team. And there were winners and there was losers on the team. There was one guy, he probably had more talent, this kid Trevor. He probably had more talent than the whole team combined. In football terms, he ran the, the, the 40-yard dash in 4-5, which for a kid his age is unbelievable. Because at that age, you can even get faster. You work on your strength and so on. He could have made it to the NFL. But he was the biggest loser on the team at the same time. Why? Anytime something went wrong, you blame everybody else. Anytime the play didn't work, I know it's everybody else's fault. Never took charge. Never wanted to practice. Never wanted to do what you're supposed to do. That's what losers do in life. I remember these kids used to work for me. And I could always tell the winners and the losers. It had nothing to do with their, with their paycheck. Before they got the paycheck. I'm writing the paycheck at the end. How do I know who's going to be a winner and who's going to be a loser? The guy that sits down and makes phone calls like a machine. No complaints. Morning, tonight, eventually he's going to win. Maybe today, maybe tomorrow, maybe in 10 years from now. But if you smile and dial and you work like you're supposed to, eventually you're going to be the winner. Why? Don't complain. The loser blames everybody else. No, it's not the same anymore. The market changed since you started. You know how many times in my life I heard that the market has changed and the business has changed in my life? They make it like I'm from the days of Antiochus. They make it like me and Antiochus were best friends back in uh, Megillat Estelle. You know, the market changed since you started. I'm like, what? Since I started? It's just five, ten years before you. What changed? No, back then it was the 90s. It was the 90s. They make it like it's, a, it's, the, it's like BC. All the excuses in the world. No, the business changed. The market changed. This changed and that changed. It's harder now. Those are the... If you ever hear anybody says things changed, remember. Remember what Yaron told you. Loser. You will never make it in life. 
We'll never make it in Torah. We'll never make it in marriage. We'll never make it in anything in life. Why? He's not allowing himself to accept responsibility. He's not honest with himself. He's not honest with himself. Once you're not honest with yourself, it's like a loser. There's a movie. 20 years ago, the girl did this. So I remember this from 20 years ago. What does it mean, loser? Loser means not that you're going to lose in everything. It means that you're never going to win where you, where you really want, where you can. You're never going to use your talent, that is the gift that Hashem gave you to its full potential. You may win from time to time. Even a broken clock is right twice a day. But the loser is never going to fulfill his, his potential. Hashem, Baruch Hashem, gave each one of you a neshama. That neshama is much more special than any other neshama on planet earth. And the reason why is because it's a Jewish neshama. Arav Desler, Allah Shalom, says that unlike any other creation that can go up or down, a Jew is, can either be the maximum potential or absolutely nothing. He can either be the highest being in creation or worse than anything else. Worse than even Afal. Send. The Jewish Neshama has the ability to become a vessel of Torah, to become an honest servant of Hashem, no different than Moshe Rabbeinu. You're actually obligated as a Jew to tell yourself every day, when, when are Maasai, when are my deeds going to be like my forefathers, Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov? Now, this is not for just people that were born Jewish. This is for people that converted too, because once you convert, you get a brand new neshama. And the Rambam puts an halacha that as soon as a person converts, he's considered a brand new baby. You no longer celebrate your, your secular birthday anymore. The new birthday that you have is the day you converted, because what you became once you converted and what you were two minutes before are two completely different people. They have nothing to do with each other. So what happens if somebody stole a day before conversion, hypothetically speaking? Does he have to return the money or no? It's a different person, Rambam says. His birthday on the day of conversion, you dip into the mikveh, you're zero years old. By the way, I'm married to a four-year-old. And some four or five years old. In some states, they may arrest me. Bemet, <laughs> I'm asking you. What happens? The Rambam says you're zero years old. You're zero years old. You stole a day before, a week before, a month before. Accident on purpose doesn't make a difference. You stole. It's That's the totza. Stole. You, somebody had money in his pocket, you took it. Doesn't make a difference. Jewish law, civil law, whatever law you want. Yeah, but before converting? Before converting. He was a before converting, he was a goy. Yes. No, no, you have to be taxed. It's a serious question. Blood on 
That's why they say, that's why they say two complete one. So, Baruch Hashem, a couple of you answered one side of the question, the other part said the first side of the question. So, the answer is, as you all said together, Baruch Hashem, it means that you're all honest with yourself and you're all thinking straight, Baruch Hashem. It means that on one hand, according to Allah, two different people. So, on one hand, not obligated to return the money. Why? It's not you. It's not you. But you still have to return the money. Why do you have to return the money? Because the other people around you, the goyim around you, and even in some cases the Jews around you, don't know of this law, don't know of this new neshama, don't know of this alakha, don't know of even this world called Torah. To them, he stole. Thief. So what happens? You have to do everything you possibly can to sanctify the name of Hashem, to honor the name of Hashem, which means that you have to stay away from desecrating His name. So if for a moment somebody would say, oh look, these Jews are thieves, you just violated the name of Hashem, desecrated His name. So even though technically you don't have to return the money because you don't owe it, you still have to because of the possibility of a chilu Hashem, because of the possibility of a desecration of Hashem, not because you owe the money, but because you owe to Hashem. You owe to Hashem to honor His name. So in essence it can be considered like you give tzedakah to the guy. You gave the guy a present. He's considering it as if you returned his money. But in reality, you gave him a present. Either way, this teaches us something very, very important. And I'm sure Rabbi Mizrahi, if you continue watching the shiur, said the same thing. Here we learn that the obligation to sanctify Hashem's name is so extraordinary that a person needs to be careful. And the only way that he could even have a remote chance a tiny, a tiny microscopic chance of living a life full of Kiddush Hashem begins with honesty with himself. If you're honest with yourself and you know where you stand, you know what you can do, what you can't do, where you are, where you're not, already you're on the right track. If a person gets used to lying to himself, pretending, oh no, he's overly righteous, he pretends like he's much more than what he really is, he's already on the road to Geno. Why? Because in reality, even though he's not a sinner right this second, it's only a matter of time before he does it. Why? The lie only gets bigger. And that's what happens. I remember hearing this uh, guy, um, he, he was a big uh, big thief a long time ago. Uh, and he, uh, in essence, got caught, went to jail, served his time, and then came back and so-called doing tshuva, but in a, in a business world. His name was is Jordan Belford, and he stole a lot of money from a lot of people in doing things that were borderline illegal, completely unethical, and so on and so forth. Now, this Jordan Belford, he's not a fool. Most of these uh, thieves criminals, they're not fools. Some of them are smarter than the average person by miles. Sometimes they have an IQ that's double the average. And he actually happens to be one of these smart people. And uh, I heard an interview of him one time. I read his books when he first came out with them. It was a very, very interesting story, funny and sad at the same time. And of course, this is before I 
did tshuva and started becoming good to the Torah, and I would never waste my time reading these books today or recommend them. But the point is, is that I remember one of the interviews is uh, somebody explained to him, like, how did you go through it? How did you do it? He says, listen, I didn't, I didn't grow up a bad kid. Grew up in a nice, you know, normal house. No one stole. No one did crime. No one was a criminal. Nothing. How did I become such a big criminal? He says, it all starts with the first one. The first time you cross the line. First time you cross that red line that you have, that threshold that you have, first time you break your own principles, now the threshold is there. The red line has moved to there. The red line is no longer where it used to be before you crossed it. The red line now is where it is, where you crossed, where you ended now. So let's say, for example, in the beginning, you weren't even willing to steal an apple. After you stole an apple, now that's the standard. That's the new standard. Now you say, no, no, I'll never do more than that. Then the next thing you know, so you steal another apple. And then after a while, the apple's not enough. So you, yeah, you know what, I'm going to steal a, uh, you know, a, a keys to something. I'm going to steal a computer. Now the line has moved a little more. It's shifted a little more and a little more and a little more. And the next thing you know, it's a Ponzi scheme for $150 million. I remember I had this kid, Evan, work for me. I fired him three times. Because he was one of these kids that had a brain, Baruch Hashem, very, very smart kid. But more excuses than Bilam. Nice kid, very smart, but unfortunately, he wanted to get rich quick. With me, there's no such thing as getting rich quick. I know there's only one way to get rich quick. Stealing. We don't steal. Now when we're secular, now when we're Baruch Hashem, now when we're religious. And he wanted to do whatever he can to get rich quick. And unfortunately for him, Baruch Hashem for me, that was not one of the things that would allow us. I would constantly would make excuses to try to like bend the system, you know, gray area, do this, do that. And I would constantly fire him either because of that or because he would not show up and he, because he would be out gambling or whatever it was. He had a, one of these fast life type of personalities. After the third time that I fired him, I was he actually I lent him like three, four thousand dollars, which he still to this day never paid me back. Uh, one of the many people that if I got all my money back from people, I'd be a millionaire again. And uh, anyway, he uh, went on in his life, and I thought for sure this kid's gonna end up in jail. I was wrong. He actually got another job, at another firm. And I started hearing stories of the kids doing good. So good, he became one of their stars. And I'm like, wow, psh, I guess I just wasn't the right fit. I guess it's my fault. I was the right fit. The kid is doing good. He's making this. He's making money. Wow, sometimes you're just not the right vessel for people. Sometimes you could, you could be perfect, chacham and everything else. But sometimes you yourself cannot be the vessel that teaches certain people. Sometimes your business, your idea is good, but... It's not good enough for that specific person. Fidel, if you can get a chair for some. Or actually, yeah, here, get it. Move, move a little bit. Right there. So, no, 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 it's okay, it's okay. He's sitting, it's fine. No, no, it's 
sorry. I didn't know there was room. So I thought maybe it's my fault. And I was, you know, to be honest with you, I was eating my heart a little bit. Why? I invested a lot of, a lot of money into this kid. It worked for me. Every kid I would invest, $100,000, $150,000 until he became something. And when you invest in somebody and he becomes something somewhere else, it's the worst thing in the world. So I hear the kids killing it somewhere else. I can't believe it. I said, okay, God bless. What can I do? Went all my life. After I left the business already, I believe this is maybe five years ago, I guess. I uh, get a phone call from somebody or a text from somebody. I don't remember which, what it was. Did you hear? I said, hear what? Hear about Evan? I said, no, what do you hear about Evan? I haven't heard from the kid in years. He told me $3,000. Even though he's making money, never gave him the money back. He goes, no, you didn't hear. He goes, what? Turn on the, uh, go on to this link, go to this website. Ponzi scheme, jail sentence. Why? Had so much talent. Had so much talent in that kid. Why? Why? Why Ponzi scheme? Why are you stealing people's money? He took people's money and went to gamble within the casino. People invested their hard, hard savings, their, hard, their, their life, their hard-earned money. He took it and went to the casino, played poker with it, lost the money, and then he couldn't give it back to them. Good for them that it was only six months. Six months, eight months before he got caught. Most Ponzi schemes go on for years. What happened? Loser mentality. He's not the only one that I know. There was another guy. I can't even say his name. He's like Beetlejuice. You say his name, he comes back to your life somehow. He's Baruch Hashem also in jail. Very dangerous person. I used to work for him. This guy named Tommy. Also, had all the talent in the world, could have made, could have become a billionaire if he wanted to. Loser mentality. What's the loser mentality? Loser mentality wants everything today, doesn't want to wait till tomorrow, and blames the whole world for their problems. They only say, I don't have it all today because of them, because of him. Because of this and because of that. Not because of the person that I see when I look in the mirror. That's a loser mentality. A person like that can never make it in life in anything. Not in Kedusha, not in, uh, not in uh, secular world, not in nothing. Why? Eventually you're going to break. You may have occasional successes like Evan and like Tommy had for a little while. They're both, they were both running good for a little while. They are both fooling everybody, including themselves for a little while. But eventually it catches up to you. Eventually, that falsehood catches up to you. This is one of the important things that a person needs to just start off. Just to start off his day, start off his day, he has to start off understanding that he has to be honest with himself. Where do I really stand? Where do I really stand? Am I a winner or am I a loser? Not am I a winner or am I a loser based on what I have in the bank. It has nothing to do with it. There's plenty of losers with millions in the bank. And there's plenty of winners with nothing. A person has to ask themselves, where do I stand? Am I really using my talent? Am I using my potential? Or am I just really good at excuses? 
of why I didn't make anything out of myself. This is one of the most important things that a person needs to know in their life because in the Avodat Hashem, in the Avodat Hashem, the serving of Hashem, a person is obligated to reach something called Shlemut. Shlemut means completion. You must become Moshe Rabbeinu. Your own version of Moshe Rabbeinu. You must become Sarai Menu. No, but I'm just little uh, Dvora. No, 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 no. Sarah. I'm just little Betzalel. No, no, no. Moshe. If you don't shoot to become Moshe, you'll end up becoming Bilam. If you don't shoot to become the best, you'll settle for the worst. You are giving a soul that has the opportunity, that has the ability, and that has the obligation to reach Shlemut, to reach completion, like Moshe Rabbeinu. Never once say, no, no, it's too hard for me. It's a loser. It's a loser mentality. It's a loser mentality. person needs to force themselves to get out of their own way sometimes. And that's actually one of the things we see that Moshe Rabbeinu told Am Yisrael here it says V'lo ta'avod et Elohim ki Moshe Rabbeinu in the beginning of Parashat Ekev, chapter 7, verse 16, it said, You shall not worship their gods, for it is a trap for you. It's a trap for you. Mokesh is a trap. I think it's also a, uh, the Hebrew word for a uh, mine. Like a landmine. Mukesh is a landmine. Elohim could also be, it doesn't mean they're gods only, it means their thoughts, their beliefs, their customs. If you surround yourselves with losers, they will be your trap. They will be your landmine. They will be the poison that you keep drinking and asking yourself, why am I sick? It's your surroundings. If you surround yourself with losers, you'll become a loser. Even if you started off as a winner. If you surround yourself with secular people, you will become secular. I don't care if it's your mother or your father or your cousin or your best friend, whoever it is. If you don't bring him up to the Torah you will fall down with them. You have to bring people up to the Torah. Now how do we get to this level of shlemut, this level of completion, where we're literally servants of Hashem, but we're like little mini Moshe Rabbeinus and Sarai Menus, like mamash, something amazing. Each one, it's little Kodesh Kodashim, Sefer Torah walking. How do we get this shlemut? That's what this, this Mishnah is going to talk about a little bit, Bezat Hashem, today. The Mishnah in Avot 
By the way, where's the clock, the little clock, if you don't mind giving it to me from there, so I know where I'm at. I could talk to you till the morning. I don't know if you guys want to talk to me till the morning. So the, the, the Mishnah in Avod, oh, yeah, yes. The Mishnah in Avod here, we're starting a new Mishnah, Bezat Hashem. And it says, this is, Hey, Kaf Gimel, 523. It's a short Mishnah, Be'ezrat Hashem will try to complete it today. Yehuda ben Tema says, Be bold as a leopard, light as an eagle, swift as a deer, and strong as a lion to carry out the will of your Father in heaven. Now does anybody here for a moment think that Hashem wants him to be an animal? No, right? Hashem, so we can have a normal shiur. Sometimes I don't have normal people. Sometimes. Sometimes I get people that are normal. Hashem gives me a gift in the middle of the shiur. You're talking about uh, Moshe Rabbeinu, they want to talk to you about basketball sometimes. Who knows? You have to ask. So, Yehuda ben Tema, this is one of the holy people of Am Yisrael, one of the sages, that we see, first of all, something interesting that is called by his name. And not Rabbi Yehuda ben Tema. So if you look at Avot the Rabbi Natan, it actually there, it, say, it does call him Rabbi Yudah ben Tema. It does call him Rabbi Yudah ben Tema. But some say that uh, this is an error, and reality is that Yudah ben Tema wasn't a rabbi. And there's two opinions on that part. Why wasn't Yudah ben Tema not called rabbi? Some opinions say because he was one of the uh, one of the few that uh, did not uh, was not musmach. He did not become an official rabbi. There was a uh, some of the sages that were big chachamim, but the uh, the ability to make them official rabbis to do the smicha like Moshe Rabenu ended before their time, where the evil goyim at the time said that anyone that uh, makes Anybody, any rabbi that makes somebody else the, does the smicha, we're going to kill them on the spot. So they stopped making people rabbis until recent generations, which is really more of a superficial title. It doesn't really it doesn't count anywhere near like these people. In those days, if you actually became a rabbi, that means you were you know considered one of the giants of the generation, not just somebody. Today, in reality, anyone can call themselves a rabbi based on limited, halachically speaking, obviously anyone can call themselves rabbi, it doesn't mean anything. You know, there, there's actually today, somebody sent me a, a question about the kashrut of some vegan restaurant. And on the, on the, on the teudah of the vegan restaurant is a pastor. Is a pastor of a, of a church, and he says, and on the thing, tikkun olam. Tikkun olam, this is kosher vegan food. And he wrote the word kosher in Hebrew, but the guy is a pastor. He's a, he's a Christian. And he asked me, and the guy doesn't know. He's like, is this considered kosher? I told him, obviously it's not. Just because it says something doesn't mean it is. 
you know, kashrut, first and foremost, you should know, anytime you go to a restaurant, you need to check the kashrut. Number one, who's behind the words? The words, anyone, my little daughter can write the word kasher, Baruch Hashem. She can write kasher. Doesn't mean it's kasher. Anyone can take a computer and write kasher. Who's behind it? Who made it kasher? What organization is it? OU, ORB, uh, whoever it is. What's kashrut? Badats, you know, what, what, what's, who's behind it? Who's verifying it's really kosher? That's number one. Number two, is it up to date? Kashrut is not given in perpetuity. It, has, it constantly gets renewed every year and some places every three months. So if the kashrut certificate is out of date, it's officially not kosher. You're not allowed to eat there. Even if it's late by one day. Yesterday it expired, today it's not kosher. Unless they get a new toda on, on the wall. Three, if it's meat, there has to be somebody there. There has to be a rabbi there. If it's meat, that's overseeing the food. If it's non-meat, if it's parv, then there's more leniency and therefore the, the, the actual uh, mashgiach does not need to be there all the time. He needs to be there at certain parts of the day, in the beginning of the day, to watch the vegetables and so on. But the point is, Abutai, is that kashrut is not so simple. You can't just go in anywhere and just decide, I'm going to eat this just because it says kashel. You have to double check. So, yes, you had a question in regards to kashrut? It says OU on the product? Yeah. What, what is it, with pen or is it a computer no, no, machine? No, no, there's a stamp, but everybody can make a stamp. No, well, I mean, if, it, if it's a known product, if it's a known product where you see that the product was already from the manufacturer, printed with this OU or with this U, with this K or whatever it is, it came from the factory with this K, fine. But if you see that somebody added that mark on it, then more times than not, I, I personally would not rely on it. Uh, but if you see that it's it comes it's factory made, again sometimes it is a second stamp, but at the factory, meaning it's a different color, but it's at the factory. So in general, in America and the Western world overall, and in Israel, it's relatively easy to spot the fakes so or fake. Uh, you know, it doesn't pay to be fake. It doesn't pay to be fake. The kosher uh, 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 organization could sue them for millions and take them out of business. They could actually go to jail for it. They get sued. It doesn't pay. That's actually why Rav Moshe Feinstein, Allah Shalom, says that even though it was minag, the, it was a, uh, it's, uh, it's important for Amisra to eat, to drink kosher milk, we are allowed to drink kosher milk that's not halab Israel in America. And the reason why is because in the old days we would worry that milk, that if we got it from the goyim, we would worry if we didn't know if it came from a cow or not. It may come from a, a, a camel it may come from a different animal that we're not allowed to drink its milk. So therefore, we're only allowed to milk our own cows. We weren't allowed to buy milk from the gleam. But today, you see that we're buying milk from the gleam every day, and it has a kosher stamp on it. And it's not chalav Israel. Why? Why are you allowed? Because Moshe Feinstein said that it's, the, the technology has advanced rapidly in America, and so did the regulation, to such an extent that already in his day, it became too much too big of a crime and too expensive of a crime to go and milk a non-kosher animal to sell to
Jews. It didn't make any sense financially. Therefore, you can rely on, this is obviously, I'm minimizing what he said, it's much more extensive halacha. But the point is, you know, for all the enemies that look for every word that I'm missing, so, Diragul, relax, there's more to it. You could look it up in his, you know, in his books. The point is, is that um, the, uh, a person can drink regular milk that's kosher in America because we can rely that it came from a cow. And it followed the rules and so on and so forth. Obviously, it has to have a kosher stamp, which I think, I don't even know if there is any milk in America that's not kosher anymore because it's just so easy to make it kosher. Uh, but if a person wants to take on himself something that's considered midat chasidut, he wants to drink halav Yisrael, eat product that's halav Yisrael, ashrav ashachelko, and the Sfarim uh, HaKadoshim say, even Yalkut Yosef and other halachic books talk about it, and say that somebody that takes them on themselves that type of midat uh, chasidut, where they that stringency, where they only eat and drink halav Yisrael, they will definitely get a special blessing from heaven for doing so. It's not an obligation, but it's a relatively easy thing to do if if uh, if you want. The point is that the, the smicha today is very different than it used to be in the old days. The first smicha was given from Moshe Rabbeinu to Yeshua Benun. As the generations advanced, that's how it was. The actual smicha was a process where the rabbi would put the hand on top of his Talmud's head after knowing that this person is raui to be a rav, not just knowledge-based, but also behavior-based and so on. But that all ended approximately 2,000 years ago. But in recent generations, the smicha has returned in a slightly different way, uh, based on uh, taking a test in some regards, or based on a mikzoa, based on a profession. In, uh, in Israel the way that you get a smicha is you take different tests. There's different tests. You want to, first of all, you, most of the, uh, uh, most people that get smicha, the first smicha they get is for slaughter. They learn how to become a slaughterer. They know all the alachot. They practice with a knife. They practice checking the knife. They practice slaughtering an animal, a chicken, a cow, calf, and so on. I remember hearing Rav Nisimi again that he says that when he saw, the first time he saw a cow, or a little sheep, a sheep that he was supposed to slaughter and to become a rav. He ran away from the sheep. He said, I felt bad for the sheep. He said, it wasn't for me. Anyway, anyone that wants to become uh, a rav, that's the, usually it's the most common uh, first degree, first where you become a rav. Most people that you see running batikneset, that's what they have. So even though being a butcher has nothing to do with running a batikneset, that is usually the lowest level of being a Rav that's a Musmach. I say, yeah, but he has a Smicha. Well, what does he have a Smicha? To run a Beknesset? No, no. He has a Smicha to be a slaughterer. So what does the one thing have to do with another? Nothing. It has nothing to do with it. But everybody makes a big deal about Smicha. There are obviously other Smicha, Tarat Mishpacha, somebody that knows Tuma Tara. It's very, very complicated to know if you're seeing the uh, the uh, the the bida cloth of of a woman like David Melech, knowing whether the blood came from the uterus or it's a wound, to know whether she's t- she's telgato for her husband, she's pure or impure for her husband, and so on. And there are other 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 uh, other levels up the way all the way up to becoming a dayan. 
In Israel, there's many, many levels. In America, it's much less. Usually in America, it's just the uh, most people that get, they get the very basic level of just uh, slaughter. Some obviously get more. But for the most part, all the people that always ask, oh, does he have a smicha? Does he have a smicha? And they, they, they make, uh, make such a big deal about their rabbi that has a smicha. The reality is they don't even know what it means. They don't know that their rabbi that has a smicha in the Beknesset, he has a smicha to slaughter cows, which has nothing to do with anything. Unless he's slaughtering cows, of course. And that's why also people, giants, people, giants, like Rav Ovadia, um, Rav Yashiv, and some of the biggest rabbis in recent history never actually got a smicha. They never took a test. Why? Because the Dayanim at the Bed Din were embarrassed to give these Geonim tests. Like they know more than us. I'm going to test them. I'm going to test Rav Ovadia. Even before Rav Ovadia became the biggest Gdolador, even as a little kid, they knew he knew more than them. At 13 years old, he knew more than the Dayanim. I'm going to test him. He knows the, the, the whole Mishnah, the whole Gemara, everything more. At 13 years old, he knows the whole thing by heart. I'm going to test him. It's embarrassing. You have to give Kavota Talmit Chacham. doesn't matter how old he is. So there's something called Gaon Mukar. Gaon Mukar meaning that everybody knows this guy is a Gaon. This guy, not just based on knowledge, Midot and so on, but actions. He takes the Torah and lives it. We don't need to test him. He passed. So you have major rabbis that never took a test. Obviously, they became the Avbatedin, biggest rabbis in the world. And then there is a different smicha, which is based on the Gemara and Baba Metzia that David Melech teaches us, which is someone that teaches Torah. Most people today that teach Torah, especially public speakers, do not have the smicha of a Gaon Mukal or the smicha of the butcher. Why? Most of them are not Gaonim to the point where they make alachot and write uh, books and so on. They may be Tamid Chachamim. They may be uh, really smart. Uh, they may make you laugh once in a while. But the reality is that they're not Gaonim. But they're not butchers either. I'm not trying to min- minimize the butcher. I'm just trying to explain to you that's really what the smicha is for. To slaughter a cow. And slaughter chickens and so on. And know where the shechita. not trying to minimize it. I'm just saying that's what it is. They're not either one, but still, according to the Gemara, Baba Metzia, I believe it's page 33, there's a machloket between the Chachamim, Ezeu Rabu. Who's your rabbi? Rabbi Meir Baraneh says, the one who teaches you Divrei Chochmah, the one who teaches you Gemara, things of wisdom. What's things of wisdom? The most difficult part of the Torah, Gemara. Whoever teaches you Gemara, that's your rabbi. Rabbi Yehuda says, no, 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 no. It's the one that teaches you the most amount of Torah that you know. You have 100% knowledge. Whatever knowledge you have, it's 100% of your knowledge. Whoever taught you the majority of that 100%. So let's say out of the 100%, you had three rabbis. One guy taught you 60%, and the other two split 20-20 to complete the 100%. 60%, 20, and 20, it's 100. So the guy that taught you 60, that's your rabbi. That's who you call rabbi. Rabbi this, Rabbi that. He taught you the most amount of Torah that you know. Ah, 
That's your rabbi. Rabbi Yossi gives a chidush. He says, you're both wrong. Why? I have a raya. I have a proof. Who have a proof? David HaMelech. No more, no less. He says, David HaMelech called his oivim, called his enemies, called his enemies rabbi. Why? Why did he call his enemies rabbi? He says, they taught him one, one alakha that he didn't know. One time, they taught him alakha he didn't know. For the rest of their life, he called him Kvodara, Kvodara. What Kvodara? He's your enemy. He wants to kill you. Doesn't matter. He taught me one halacha. He's my rabbi. He's a rabbi. So from here we learn that the status of rabbi means teacher. And therefore a person that teaches on a regular basis, not just once in their life, is considered a rabbi. And one time I remember hearing Rabbi Mizrahi say, and I believe it was in the... Um, Talmud series that he has, which is fantastic. Whoever didn't hear it, I think he believe. I believe he actually went over this uh, this Mishnah in the Gemara, and he actually explained that who's your rabbi? In, let's say, for example, in this generation, who do you call your rabbi? Your rabbi is the guy that saved your neshama. That's your rabbi. You may learn some halacha or daf yomit You may learn uh, some uh, this, some that here and there. But the guy that took you out of Gehenom is taking you to the Gan Eden, that's your rabbi. That he created you. Avot Rabbi Natan says somebody that took you out of Gehenom, put you in Gan Eden, that's taking you to, to Olam Abba, that made you do tshuva, convert, and so on. He is considered, in essence, a partner with Hashem in creating you. So, Yehuda ben Tema wasn't called a rabbi. So what, he, what, he didn't know anything? So one opinion, as I told you, in Avot Rabbi Natan, says, no, he was a rabbi. They just made a mistake here. Most of the Chachamim don't agree with that. He said, no, no, no. He was already in a generation that there was no more smicha. There was no more smicha. It was already too late. They weren't doing smichot anymore. But obviously, he's a giant that can revive the dead. So he's in the Mishnah. He's mentioned all over the Gemara in many places. And so on. But then there's another opinion. Then there's another wonderful opinion. My personal favorite. That's the one I'm going with. The Gemara says, Gadol Mirav Rabban. Gadol Mirabban Shmo. There is levels of titles that you see in the Torah for the Chachamim. It says the lowest level is Rav. Rav. If he's more than just a Rav, this guy is psh, psh, he's a psh, he's a psh, he's a, this guy, you can't call him Rav, why he's Rav and he's Rav, you can't call him Rav. What do you call him? Rabban. Like Rabban Gamliel. Rabban Gamliel, Alakha in the entire Torah, like Rabban Gamliel. Anywhere it says, Rabban Gamliel says this, Alakha like Rabban Gamliel. Doesn't make a difference who came before, doesn't make a difference. Rabban Gamliel, Nasi, that's it, finished. The argument's finished. That's why a lot of times in the Gemara, you break your head, you break your head. No, Rabbi said this, he said this, he said this, he said this. Five, six, seven pages of sugiya, smoke's coming out of your ears, your eyes are bleeding. You're like, what's going on? He said this, he said this. I agree with him, I agree with him. Ah, oh, ah, you're fighting with the Gemara the whole time. And then, there's one little line at the end. Oh, Rabban Gamliel says, Alakha, opposite of both of them. You're like, why didn't you just tell me in the beginning? Why didn't you just kill me? Why did you just kill me? Why did you make me go through all these pages? 
The reason why, Rabotai, is because we're not supposed to just learn Torah like a song. Abaye, Abaye, you see him all over the Gemara. He had a, he asked somebody, where's your source to getting something? He goes, no, I don't remember the source. I don't remember. He goes, oh, so you just say this is the halacha? He goes, yeah, why not? He goes, oh, so you treat the Torah like it's a song? You just memorize it? You don't know why? That's not Torah. Torah, we need to know how to get to the truth. How to get to the truth. So, sometimes we, the Gemara will make you fight back and forth on a sugya, on a complication, go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, even though the answer is something completely different at the end. Why? To show you that all of the other possibilities are not true. And how to arrive at the truth. Process of elimination is, is, is part of it. So, if somebody is a Rav, good. But if somebody is a Rabban, bigger. But then the Gemara says, what if he's bigger than Rabban? He's bigger. What are we going to call him? Shmo. Just his name. Just his name. You see in the Gemara, it says Shmuel. Why Shmuel? What happened to Shmuel? Shmuel is bigger than Rabban. Bigger than Rav, bigger than Rabban, bigger than everybody. You see sometimes names in the Torah, Avram Avinu. You don't say ah, Rabbi Avram. No, you call Rabbi Avram, it's, it's Avera. It's not a rabbi. It's Avram, Yaakov, Yitzchak, Aaron, David, Shlomo. Why? Wait, just because they were. No. Because they're bigger. So, Gadol Miraban Shmo. So, that's the one I like. That's the one I'm going with. But all of them are right in reality. All of it is Divrei Lukim Chaim. Based on the time and just this finishing the introduction, I don't think we're going to finish this Mishnah tonight, guys. Ken, that's also part of the tables. That's also part of the tables. Lower. Bigger than uh, Rabbi, not Rav. Ken. So, there's a list I'll send you. I don't remember all the uh, things, but the uh, there's a list. It shows who, what, when, and how. In general, though, you should know that the titles meant much more up to the Rishonim, up to about 900 years ago. After that, things changed drastically. Things changed drastically. Especially in our generation. Every guy that knows one Gemara by heart is considered a Gaon, even if you don't know what a Gemara is. The guy mentioned something in his shiur, and he gave you a zgula for a red string. Yeah, this is a gaon, mukar, kadosh, the five lines just describing all the machmaot, all the compliments on the guy. No one knows anything. One time a guy goes to one of these babot in Israel, and uh, he says, listen, I have this problem, that problem, this problem, that problem, this problem. I heard you have a cure. He goes, I have a cure. He goes, what is it? Because you have to buy this water for me. He goes, how much? $1,000 only. $1,000, a little bit of water, no problem, it's good. He goes, okay, I'll buy it. I have so many problems, I have the last $1,000, I'll give it to you, no problem. Just solve my problems. Okay, I'll be right back. The old Baba with the, uh, with the whole uh, uniform that he had looked like he just came from Star Trek. You know, I had the hood on and the thing, uh, Star Wars, Star Wars, like the guy uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi. And I uh, had the whole Star Wars uniform and everything, the only thing he didn't have is a light stick. And anyway, the guy goes back, in the meantime, in the meantime, the guy that's sitting there, 
sees these big books on the table. Big black books. No letters on them, though. You know, he's curious. What's in these books? What's he? Flekodes, maybe there's secrets. Maybe there's uh, Kabbalah. Maybe there's like Moshe Rabbeinu. Who oh, no, What's in this thing? So he opens the book. He sees Mickey Mouse. The books were Disney books. It's the only books he could find that were compl- really, really big, really, really intimidating, and black. No title on them. Mickey Mouse books. Nobody ever opens the book. So when the old man came, he said, oh, he was saw that he opened the books. He saw he's caught. He's caught. He says, Lomit Bayesh, you're not embarrassed of yourself, you liar, you thief, Ganav. Lomit Bayesh, you take money from pe- poor people, a thousand dollars for water. He goes, What am I going to do? It's my living. He goes, Do something else, get a job. He goes, I'm too old. He goes, Where'd you get the water? He goes, The faucet. <laughs> the faucet. He goes, Why? You don't, why don't you at least have, at least pretend to know something? Have Siflet Torah. He goes, I don't know how to read. I don't know how to read. The only thing I like is Mickey Mouse. People fall. Now, you're going to say the guy is a Rasha, right? And you're right, he's a Rasha. But his clients are also Rashaim. The guy is a Rasha, but his clients are also Rashaim. Don't be mistaken thinking he's the only Rasha. The clients are also Rashaim. Why? They're looking for a shortcut. Anyone that's looking for a shortcut is what we talked about in the beginning of the shoe. He's a loser. He's looking for an excuse. He's looking for some, a quick fix. He wants to get rich overnight. Overnight. Now I want to buy this one stock and it's going to go from zero to 50 billion. Yeah, but what do you know about it? I don't know. I just had a cool symbol. What do you know about the... No, nothing. Well, you started a business. Why did you start this business? I don't know. I just figured I'd become a millionaire in a week. Start an online store. Lot, so many people start these online businesses and after it doesn't work out, after two, three months, they quit. Why did you start if you're going to quit after two months? Oh, it didn't work out. Nothing works out after two months. Nothing works out after two months. What do you think? People think that things are supposed to work. If it doesn't work right away, it's not going to work. Nonsense. Good things take time. If it comes quick, there's a problem. You should be worried when it comes quick. Pray is irrelevant. Pray, pray is as a kalvachomer. Of course you pray, regardless. But the point is, is that to expect to, to live a life where you expect things to happen right away, you're only destroying yourself one piece at a time. Why? Because you're only going to be disappointed time and time and time and time again. And then you're going to lead yourself to think that the small successes, oh, that's an indication for much bigger to come. And then it fails in your face. Hashem tried to give you like a way out. Here, here's a little success. Get out. Get out, son. Get out. No, no, no. It's not good enough. I'm only going to get out once it's uh, once I'm uh, Steve Jobs. Okay, so now you're going to be Steve Jobs before you became a billionaire. When you're still a little kid. Trying to figure out what he's going to do with it. You know, ride the bicycle on Before he had $5 in his name. So a person needs to know, Hashem is going to try to help you, but He's not going to make miracles just for you for no reason. You're not supposed to be the small chalanist to, to, to rely on miracles. It's, it's, a, it's a bad way to live. 
And also, even if you succeed, it's also a bad way. It's, it's actually not healthy success. And the reason why is because you're, not, you're going to think that everything is supposed to be that way. That's why these lotto winners, you look statistically speaking, people have done a, a, a research on this. The overwhelming majority, and by overwhelming majority, I don't mean 51%. Overwhelming majority means over 90% of lotto winners, like big jackpot lotto winners, declare bankruptcy and end up in worse financial shape than they were before they won the millions and millions of dollars they won. And I'm not just talking about the guy that won a million dollars. I'm talking about a million, ten, fifty, a hundred, five hundred million dollars. Literally, you see the stories of these people. They lose everything. They declare bankruptcy. Sometimes they commit suicide. Sometimes they get murdered. Like, which story is worse after another? You ever have, if you're ever stuck in the bathroom, you have nothing to do, you could just type this up on, uh, on, on, on the internet and you'll see. They make all videos about this stuff. Of the, the, the curse of winning the lotto. It's not the curse of winning the lotto. It's the curse of making yourself believe that life is supposed to be easy. Avot the Rabbi Natan says that Gadol mi Rabban Shmo. Also, Avot the Rabbi Natan also says some other things that are very interesting. He says, A perush on this Mishnah, he says, Love heaven. He adds to this Mishnah, he says, Love heaven, fear heaven. Be meticulous and joyful over the mitzvot. In essence, he's trying to tell you what does it mean to be bold like a leopard, light like an eagle, and so on. He's trying to tell you that this is how you're supposed to treat the mitzvot and how you're supposed to treat all the opportunities to get closer to Hashem, to get the shlemut, to get the completion. He says, first and foremost, love heaven. Fall in love with Hashem. But don't think... This is one of these little fairy tale thirteen year old relationships when you're still secular. No, no, fear heaven too. Love heaven, fear heaven. Be meticulous and joyful over the mitzvot. Be passionate about the mitzvot. That's how you end up falling in love with them. If you're not passionate about buying an atrog, you're always going to look at it as expensive. If you're not passionate about building a sukkah, it's always going to be annoying. Ah, I got to build this thing again. If you're not passionate about Pesach, you're always going to look at it like, yeah, it's almost over. It's almost over. If you're not passionate about the mitzvot, then all you're doing is suffering. All you're doing is suffering. So what the Rabbi Natan says, be passionate about the mitzvot, joyful about them. But also when it comes to treatment with your friends, your colleagues, your wife, your husband, you have to make sure that you judge yourself, you're honest with yourself. How so? If you did some small injustice to your friend, you did something wrong, view it as a major infraction. Don't be too kind to yourself if you did something wrong to somebody else. Nah, come on, I just bumped into him. What's the big deal? I just I just forgot to give him the money back. What's the big deal? I forgot, I'll give it to him tomorrow. I'll give it to him tomorrow. I forgot to give it to him. Big deal. Forgot to give it to him. Forgot to pay him. Big deal. Wrong. It's a sin. It's not a, it is a big deal. When you pay him the next day, you have to say, I'm sorry. Why? Because like I said, if now it's not a big deal, 
You say, no big deal, I'm going to pay him. The next thing you know, you're now late two days. Because the line is now has changed. You've shifted the line. The red line has shifted. It became as few hours, then it's a, a few days, then it's a few weeks, then the next thing you know, you don't pay him for six months. Ah, it's a big deal, he has money from somewhere else. If he survived till now, he's fine. And that's what happens sometimes. You have these poor people that work for certain companies and they don't get paid from these companies for months. And it's not because the companies don't have money. It's because the companies simply don't want to pay. And they know these people, these poor people don't have a choice. First, they make things, oh yeah, he's late only a week. He's always late one week. So you wait two weeks. Ah, where's my check? Where's my check, boss? I don't have your check. Next time, next week. So the guy waits another two weeks. No, I have the check. No, no, I don't have the check. Next month. What's the guy going to do? He knows if he quits now, the guy's never going to pay him. He needs the money. So he buys more time, more time. Next thing you know, the guy is dragging him along for two, three, four, five months. And it's not because he doesn't have the money. It's because he doesn't have midot. He lets the line keep going and keep going and keep going. You have to be very honest when it comes to money. If you're not honest with money, most likely you're not going to be honest with anything else. If you did him good though, view it as something small and insignificant. You did somebody a favor. You gave him a ride somewhere. You lent him a little bit of money, a lot of money. Set him up on a shiduch. Whatever you did. Don't make it like your Moshe Rabbeinu. Don't remind the guy every single time. Yeah, no. Who introduced you guys? Who introduced... Okay, that was 10 years ago, buddy. Relax. That was 10 years ago. We have to remind my kids that you introduced us 10 years ago. Relax. Take it easy. It was a shem at the end. You just used a vessel. You see this house? Who lent you the money? No, no. Who loves you? I don't love If you love me, you wouldn't remind me. Some people, they chase kavod. So much, they want so much kavod, so much honor, they can't get over the fact that maybe he didn't thank me enough, so I have to remind him. I have to remind him to say thank you. Okay, he said thank you now. I have to remind him again. It's a good story. Okay, second time, third time, ten time, twenty time. How many times are you going to remind the poor guy? You did him a favor in 1912. Fine, you saved his life even. Enough. Chalas, relax. Don't make it like it's such a big deal. Why? First of all, no one likes to be reminded that they were in a, in a bad situation or in an unfortunate situation or in any situation that's not superior to now from the past. No one likes to be reminded of it. That's just a reality. Second of all, if he was really grateful, you wouldn't need to remind him. Which means if you're reminding him, even if he says thank you, he doesn't mean it. Someone that means it will say it. If he doesn't say it and you have to force it out of him, he doesn't mean it anyway. What difference does it make to you? It's like asking your dog to, to bark three times. He barks three times. So what? People make such a big deal. Oh, look, he got the ball. Okay, he's a dog. He gets balls. Big deal. You said to the guy, say thank you, or you embarrassed him in front of 25 people. He says thank you to eliminate the embarrassment and make himself feel better. If he was really grateful, he would say it. And if he doesn't say it, who needs a thank you anyway?
The other reason is when you get kavod in this world, you're ruining all the schal you're really going to get. All of the reward you're going to get is for mitzvot that no one else knows about. If you make sure that the whole world knows that you donated to the Beknesset and you donated to the Irgun and you helped this homeless person out and you helped this guy out and you helped this one this and this one that, you're ruining it. I find it really, really funny sometimes. God bless them. People don't know this, so don't take offense to it. But the reality is, somebody has to tell you. And it's nobody in this room, Baruch Hashem. But some people that watch the Shuim need to be need to know it's critical for you to do mitzvot basetel. To do it quietly, behind the scenes. Don't tell anybody. Why? As soon as you tell somebody that you're doing it, already you're getting kavod from that person. That kavod is instead of schar in olam abba. Now what does it mean? If somebody donates money in a Beknesset in one of these auctions, they're going to get kavod from everybody. Wow, look at this guy. 15,000 he donated this year. Psh, wow, chazak. Chazak baruch. Now that poor guy that donated 15,000 or 15 million to the Beknesset will arrive one day in Olam Ha'emet, in the Bet Din of Shamayim, and he's going to ask for he's going to ask for a payment. He's going to ask for the reward. Now tell him, oh yeah, here, here you get a little Cadillac in Shamayim. Here you go. What Cadillac? I gave him fifteen million over there. I gave fifteen thousand. I thought you guys pay well. He goes, yeah, we do pay well, but you only we paid you ninety nine point nine percent of the reward in the, in the, in the world that you just came from. You only have a little bit left, so that's what we're giving you. Have a little Cadillac left. Why? All the kavod, you know, Steve, and Joe, and David, and, uh, and Oshri, and Gabi, and Lad, all those guys give you kavod, all them. No, what else do you want? They all liked you more, they all did business with you, they all helped you, they all invited you. That's it, that's the reward, you got a lot of reward. No, no, I want more Cadillacs. Ah, sorry, sir, no refunds. You already spent it. You came, to, you came with a ticket, but the ticket had holes. You know, in the old days... Probably more before most of you guys were born, with the exception of Fidel, he's old like me. Uh, the, uh, the, the, we, are, we go on, on buses, we go on buses, and they make holes in the ticket. Make holes in the ticket. So you go up to Shaman, he's like, look, I have the ticket. Yes, sir, you have a ticket, but it has holes in it. You used it. You used the ticket. It's an empty metro card. You know what a metro card is? They still use metro cards? Metro card. It's an empty metro card. Who knows these days? So, A person that gets reward in this world, a sense of kavod is ruining it for himself. He's going to cry in Shemaim. He's going to cry inside Gan Eden. He's going to get to Gan Eden, no problem. But he's going to cry inside Gan Eden. Why? He has only one world instead of 310. He's going to be in Gan Eden crying. Miserable. Why? Look what I could have had. If I just simply didn't get the kavod for a couple of minutes. So sometimes people, people send... People send donations online, and they said, "Oh, listen, I uh, I just donated to this such and such organization anonymously. It's good, right? If it's anonymous, why are you telling me? If it's anonymous, why are you telling your friends? If it's anonymous, keep it anonymous. Keep it to yourself between you and Hashem. What do you want me to give you a high five? Who am I, Bichlal? I'm nothing. If Moshe Rabenu said, 'Ve'anach numa,' he's nothing." 
You think I'm anything? So, Rabotai, trust me when I tell you, if you gave tzedakah, if you did a mitzvah, for sure, guaranteed, Hashem wrote it down. For sure. And if you don't believe He wrote it down, why are you doing it then? If you don't believe that Hashem is writing down every single ma'aseh, every single act that you do, every word that comes out of your mouth, every mitzvah, every avera, every word, every sound, everything that you do is written down in the book in Shemaim. If you don't believe it, why are you doing it? Why keep Shabbat? Why you keep mitzvot? Why you keep anything? If you don't believe Hashem writes it down, why are you keeping it? So obviously you believe. You don't show up to a shiur at 11 o'clock at night because you don't believe. You believe. If you believe, you believe that he's going to count everything else. He's for sure going to count the money you donate. He's for sure going to count all of the other good things that you do. You don't need to publicize it. Why? I'm telling you for you, you can continue publicizing it. But you're damaging yourself. You're going to get the Ghanedin crying. We can't help you in Ghana. It's already finished. So Avot Rabbi Natan says, if you do something good, don't make such a big deal out of it. Why? You could actually end ends up leading you to sin. You become arrogant. Think of yourself as a big deal. Think of yourself as a tzaddik. The Rambam says that each person needs to view themselves as 50-50. 50% rasha, 50% tzaddik. Never view yourself as a rasha. It's not good. You're not allowed to even say lashon about yourself. Never allowed to call yourself a rasha. Never allowed to call yourself a tzaddik. Why? 50-50. The next mitzvah puts you in the right place. But then, you're back to 50-50 at all times. You're back to 50-50 at all times. That also is the reason why it says, Kol Yisrael Arabim All of Am Yisrael are, are, are uh, responsible for each other. Why? Wall 50-50, which means that your next Avera could put the entire Ami side on a bad side, Chas Shalom. Or the next mitzvah, you could save all of Ami side from all these mitzvah uh, that they have in a couple of days. I think tomorrow, they're supposed to have another march in Yerushalayim for all these disgusting human beings that want to publicize their sex life to the world. They want to go to Yerushalayim and publicize it. These are spiritual terrorists, these, these people. So, it's important for a person to be honest with himself. Don't make such a big deal out of your mitzvot, but also don't get into depression out of your averot either. Move forward. Move forward. If your friend did something small for you, Abba the Rabbi Natan says, if he did something small for you, deem it as a great favor. But if he did something against, uh, significant against you, View it as insignificant. This we learned, if you remember, a few months ago, maybe four months ago together, in a shir we had in uh, Hollywood, I think it was probably one of the deepest shirs we've ever had about the significance of saying thank you and being grateful, how... When you borrow a pen from somebody, you're thinking, thanks, it's not really a big deal. In reality, the guy may have just saved your olam haba. You're supposed to thank him for the rest of eternity because he gave you a pen. And why? And once we actually delve into things and dig deeper into things and realize how significant the smallest thing is. Yeah. You guys didn't finish, by the way? 
So gratitude is very, very important. Gratitude is critical for a human being to be grateful. We spoke about it yesterday, number one. It's one of the secrets for happiness is to learn how to be happy with your share, whatever your share is, even if your share includes a lot of a lot of uh, problems. Even if your share includes a lot of problems, say thank you Hashem for the problems. Why? It could be worse also. Thank you Hashem for the problems because the reality is that if I didn't have these problems, I'd have to pay for it in Shemaim. I'd rather pay for it here with these problems. There's a million and a half reasons to thank Hashem for problems. But also, to be grateful in general reminds you of all the good things you really do have. If somebody does you a favor, big or small, unlike when you do them a favor, you're not supposed to view it as a big deal, don't do the same thing to them. You gave them a ride, you're treating it like, oh, okay, it's not a big deal, I gave them a ride. They gave you a ride like, oh, it's not a big deal either. No, 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 no. For you, it's not a big deal. For them, it is. They gave you a ride. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Really, really do. You're the best. Yeah, I gave you a ride. Dude, I gave you a ride three weeks ago. It's fine. No, no, no. I just want to let you know. You really saved me. If you didn't give me a ride, I wouldn't have gotten home at that time. And I didn't have all the different fine reasons to say thank you. Be grateful to people. It'll also not only help you become happier, it'll also help you think, help you like people. It'll help you like people. Why? Because if you're reminding yourself of the good that other people are doing for you, it gives you a reason to like them. Typically people that are ungrateful are also antisocial. They're antisocial because they don't like people. And therefore, people don't like them either. So if, if, you, if somebody did you a favor, you have to be appreciative of it. This is something we all have to work on. But if he did something wrong to you, if he did something wrong against you, don't make a big deal out of it. Let it go. Why? It's not worth ruining a relationship over it. It's not worth... Becoming a sinner over it. You start talking Lashonara about the guy. You start hating the guy. You start carrying hate in your heart. Okay, he messed up. He did this. He did that. If he says, I'm sorry, let it go. Even if he doesn't say, I'm sorry, just forgive him and move on. If you're really at a high level, you can become friends with him again like nothing happened. But don't carry hate in your heart. It's a spiritual cancer. And that's the last thing that Ravot Rabbi Natan says in this section. He says, learn to accept pain and forgive those who insult you. It seems that this is repetitive in the last couple of weeks. Every single Chacham and every single Mishnah and every single comment and every single book that I've read, this is apparently Hashem is trying to tell me something. Learn to forgive people. Accept pain. Life is full of pain. Make something good out of it. Excuse me? Even the haters, as long as they're not kofrim. If they're haters because they simply don't like you, you don't have to, uh, you know, you don't have to become best friends with them, but uh, you shouldn't hate them. But if they're haters because they're kofrim, like this one Rasha Merusha that I met in New York some time ago, 
He has a very holy name, but he's the most unholy person that I've ever met in my life. And he wanted to have a public debate with me. And uh, I did a lecture in New York. And somebody told me before the lecture, I have this guy, he's a kofel, he's a this, he's a that. I said, bring him to the lecture. He goes, when? No. Bring him now. They admit is not scared. What do you think? I he has questions. We have answers. They admit has answers. What's the problem? So he brought him to the lecture. At the end of the lecture, he thought he was smart. He asked the question. Baruch Hashem. Hashem gave us the answer that shocked him and the rest of the crowd. I think he asked the second question. The second question was even, uh, the second answer was even better than the first. And he got into a shock. He didn't know what to do with himself. He wanted to bury himself because the crowd just got chizuk from the answer instead of doing what he wanted them to do, which is to become kofrim like him. So he didn't know what to do with himself. So I said, oh, you don't have any more questions? Okay, you know what? I'll start asking questions. I'll ask the questions and I'll give the answers. I'll ask questions like you would ask because you think that you know something. So all the complicated... So I started asking questions myself and I gave the answers to Hashem. And the crowd got, I think that part of the lecture was more, was stronger than the rest of the lecture. Because it's questions that people think about or they heard and maybe they didn't have the answers. And Baruch Hashem, I asked a lot of questions in my life. So, uh, and I wasn't one of those people that was looking for an excuse. I was looking for the actual answer. Just many people didn't have it. Eventually when I found the answer, I said, Baruch Hashem, there's an answer. Some people, they ask a question just because they want to make people think that they're smart. Some people ask questions just because they want to ask a question because they know that most people are not going to know the answer or maybe there isn't an answer in their opinion. So that's their excuse to justify their behavior. Some people just look for excuses. Once in a while you have people that ask questions because they look for answers. So anyway, so this guy wanted to bury himself. After that, Tommy Castell could ask more questions and so on, but he ran away. Literally ran away. And then, uh, you know, I, uh, I told the guy, listen, if he has more questions and if he's looking for real answers, no problem, contact me. He contacted me, and I said, no problem, I gave him a bunch of material. I said, if you want to have a real uh, debate or anything, first look at, the, look at the material, study the material objectively. If you still have questions after you study all this material, then we'll go over that. But don't just uh, ask me the same thing for no reason. So I gave him a bunch of things. And right off the bat, within literally minutes, he was already rejecting it. No, no, but this one, it's not... This scientist, he's not accepted by everyone. Which scientist is? Oh, this guy, no, but he's a Christian. And, and so he has an agenda. And this guy, he's a Jew. And he has an agenda. And this guy, and everything had an excuse. I said, oh, so you're just looking for excuses. You're not looking for answers. Even if a donkey provided you an answer, does it make a difference? Hashem opened Naton's mouth. Why? He says, even Naton can give you truth. What's the problem? But if you're looking for an excuse, nothing's going to help. And then he said something that shocked me. I didn't actually think people like him exist. I was naive. He started talking about how he's so proud of the fact He's like, you don't understand, I know a lot. I read all these books. So I asked him, what books did you read? 
He's like, no, I read a few books. I was, can you take up pictures of your books? I said, what? I said, can you take a picture of the books you read? I want to see what books you read. Maybe I read them. Maybe I didn't. Maybe I want to. Maybe I want to read the same books. So he took the. So he took the pictures of the books. Nothing extraordinary. Nothing special. But one thing stood out. His number one scientist. Who's his number one scientist? He learns a lot from Stephen Hawking. Why was Stephen Hawking? At least he would have hope. No, you know who is his number one scientist? He learned a lot from. He had a book. I'll show you the picture after the show. Bill Nye, the science guy. He's a comedian. Not only an actor, he's a comedian. He's not even a scientist. He's called a science guy because that was a TV show he had 30 years ago. And idiots think he's actually a scientist. This is who he learned science from. So after that, I call. I, I told him this is a joke. You're not even. You're not even a qualified heretic. Like at least if you're smart, you studied. You, you wrote, you did something, okay, fine, but you have no nothing. You don't have this one, you don't have that one. You know, you don't understand, you know how much I know. I already convinced at least five people to stop keeping Shabbat. I said, excuse me? His trophy was that he convinced people to stop keeping Shabbat. I stopped the conversation at that point. I said, you stop, you're, you're proud? Do you stop people from keeping Shabbat, you menuval? He said, do you know that I pray every day for people like you to die? But now, Baruch Hashem, you're helping me. To, now, from now on, I'm going to have your picture in my mind as Kavanah, to Zad Hashem, Hashem kills you. He goes, why? It's not nice what you're saying. I said, it's not nice. Every Jew is praying for you to die. It's an Amidah every day. In Amidah every day, you pray for people like him to die. If you don't believe because you don't know, it's one thing. If you believe something else, it's another thing. But to be proud to go and take people that believe out, what do you benefit out of it? It's pure evil. That's why even if a person like that comes back to you and says, I want to do tshuva, you're not allowed to help him. Jacob. That's his name, Jacob. Not you, Shalom. Now you, I told you, he has a holy name, but he's the most biggest rasha I've met in my life. No, not that I know. Exactly, that's what he's trying to do. That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing. Anyway, Rabotai, let's continue. We're running out of time. The Mishnah continues and he starts giving, Yehuda ben Tema starts giving descriptions of all of these animals, special types of animals that he's trying to tell us this is what you should be like. Be a leopard, be an eagle, be a deer, be a lion. Wait a minute, why can't I just be a Jew? Obviously this is symbolic. Each one of these animals has character traits that you're supposed to learn from. Shlomo HaMelech says, Lech atzel. Go to the ant, you lazy bum. And, and learn from her. What learn from her? Learn to be ambitious. Learn to be a hard worker. Why? The nemala, the ant, 
in its first day of existence, it already it already acquires enough food for the rest of its life. The Gemara says that the ant lives six months. The ant lives six months. On its first day of existence, it already gathered enough food for the rest of its life. Now, let me ask you guys, maybe you had a different ant farm than I did when I was a kid. Did anybody ever see an ant go on vacation? Maybe to the Bahamas, maybe? Did you ever see an ant just relax, maybe take some sun? Maybe ask for like a pension package? Anyone ever see an ant even sleep? You ever see an ant sleep? You ever see an ant not work? No. That's what Shlomo Amalek is trying to tell us. Lech He specifically says, you are lazy, go learn from the end. That's what you're supposed to do. Why? What do you mean you're supposed to do? You're supposed to work on Wall Street every day, every night? No. You're supposed to work at the hospital every day, every night? No. You're supposed to work for Hashem every day, every night. Learn how to serve Hashem by using the work ethics of the, of the Nimala, of a tiny little creature. We're already on its first day. It gathers enough food for the rest of its life, but not once does the end say, oh, I have enough, so I'm going to stop tomorrow. It doesn't have the loser mentality. It says, no, no, I already learned this last year, so I don't need to learn it anymore. I already came to Shiro once this week, so I don't have to come to the other two Shiroim. I already came to Shiro. It's like you hit your quota. I already learned an hour today. It's enough. I'm going to go and rest a little bit. You're going to rest a lot of it eventually. By the way, no one that ever rested a lot of it at the end of their life ever said, you know what, I wish I would have slept more. No one ever writes on their will, says, you know what, you get the house, the hotel, the this, the that. But by the way, guys, I really got to tell you something. I wish I would have slept more. No one ever says that. No one ever says, I wish I would have slept more. Why? Because everyone knows that's the last thing you want to do. You do it because you have to. But not because you get some joy out of it to be lazy. The Nemala, the ant, is something that we are supposed to learn from. In order to make sure that a person never spends a moment being lazy. People that get bored, they only get bored because they have a lazy mentality. And they choose to do things that are easy, that are superficial, that are mindless. They never delve into anything. They never push themselves hard to get something, to achieve something, to do something with life. So all the things they do, they only do it if it's comfortable. I'm only going to learn Torah if it comes to my house. So the guy never comes to a shiur Torah. Why? It's not in his house. Yeah, but we're only going to have a shiur Torah in your house once a year. You live down the street. Why can't you come to the other three, four, five shiurim? Nah, I'm going to watch it online. Oh, so you're spiritually lazy. The worst type of laziness. A person needs to know you're not allowed to be lazy with Hashem. That's your job. You're sleeping on the job. 
So now, the Mishnah here says, first and foremost, you should know, the end of the Mishnah says, all of this is for Hashem. All of it. All of it is for Hashem. It's not for anything else. First and foremost, be bold like a leopard. By bold as a leopard, anyone that knows a little bit about nature, Hashem's creation is beautiful. Each animal has its role in the world. Each animal has its own unique character traits. It's very, very interesting to learn about animals. You see how the behavior of the lion is specific and how and who and what. For example, just today I learned that part of the reason why the lion is called Aryeh is because when the lion catches, the, catches let's say, the giraffe or, or the zebra or the gazelle or whatever it is, lions, they have tribes. They're not loners. They usually have others with them. They build families and so on. But the lion that caught it, usually he takes the head part, the main key part of the gazelle or zebra, whatever it is, and the rest of it he gives to the family. He takes the part that's called Ari. That's why he's called Ari. Adam Arishon, that called him Ari, already knew that's his nature. His nature is to take the head piece because he's the head. The Ari is the head. So he takes the head. And he gives the rest to the rest. Hey, hey guys, go. He cares less about the rest of the uh, zebra and the rest. No, he takes the head piece. Finish. Go, you're good. Go. Enjoy. Enjoy. That's what a real leader does. A real leader takes whatever he needs, gives the rest to the rest of the people. Losers take everything and give the little crumbs to everybody else. There's many of those, by the way. So the... Nature of a leopard is actually unique. Unique in a way that a leopard always looks like it's going after animals that are much bigger and stronger than it. And not only does it go after these animals, but it also eats its prey in a very interesting way where it actually takes whatever prey it has. It could be a, a moose that's double, three, four, five times his size, and he carries this moose up a tree. And he eats the moose, he eats the deer on top of a tree. So it looks like you're going to carry that. It's three times your size. How are you going to carry it? How are you going to dare do such a big thing, even going after this animal? He says because the, the leopard ha- is a bold animal. It always looks like it's, it's taking on tasks that are much bigger than it. Likewise, the Tiferet Israel says, a man should never, shrink, should never shirk spiritual opportunities with claim that such things are only for the truly righteous, for the tzaddikim. He should be bold and fearless and ambitious as a leopard in assuming spiritual duties beyond his perceived capabilities. And trust that Hashem Barach will grant them the strength to overcome the obstacles. Now when people say you should have emunah and bitachon in Hashem, what they don't understand is that you're supposed to have emunah and bitachon in Hashem 
and assume that Hashem has a munayin bitachon in you too. Meaning that if He gave you a test, you have a munayin bitachon, He's going to help you, and if you fall off the mountain, He's going to catch you, right? In reality, what you're supposed to, that emunayin bitachon is relying on the fact that you also believe He has emunayin bitachon in you. That if He gave you a test, you're going to do it. He gave you a test, you're going to pass it. If He puts you on the mountain, you're going to go, you're going to win. If He give you a big obligation, you're going to take the bull by the horns, you're going to run. You're not going to be a loser and hide. Don't hide behind your responsibilities and your obligations and your past and your past and your past and your past. Because the past belongs to the Satan. You have to, whatever Hashem gave you now, that means He has emunah and bitachon in you. He has emunah and bitachon in you, that you're going to do it. And that's why you have emunah and bitachon in Him says that, oh, I, I, it doesn't seem like I can really do it. It doesn't seem like, it's too big for me. It's as big as a tree. It's as big as a world. Who am I to even speak? Who am I to even do? Who am I to even read? Who am I? Who am I? I'm nothing. But I'm going to go for it. Why? I'm supposed to be like the leopard. I'm supposed to be bold to go after big things. And because I went after it, Hashem's going to help. He has emunah in me, that's why he gave me the test. I have emunah in him that if I go for it, he's going to help me achieve it. And this is specifically referring to spirituality. Of course you could apply this in other things like business and so on. But the truth be told, most people don't really need much help in that stuff. They take on risks unnecessarily even without emunah in bitachon. Because they're gamblers. They like the rush of a gamble. They call it um, capitalism or ambition. All types of code words that make them seem like they're smart. In reality, most of them are just gamblers. Gamblers. Risk takers, gamblers. Some are educated gamblers, some are just stupid. Point is, is that most people don't need help to take risks in business and so on. They like to hear other people's stories but even if you give them advice of what to do and what you shouldn't do, if they already have their mind set up, it doesn't make a difference what experience you have. They're still not going to listen to you. But when it comes to spirituality, all of a sudden, everybody's humble. You tell somebody, listen, why don't you finish the Masechet in the next month? No, come on. No, it's too big for me. I can't. It takes me so long. It's too big. It's too this. It's too that. Why it's too big? You study. You do. You can do it. Why not? Nah, come on, I'm not at that level. I'm not at that level. Why don't you wake up for nits? Nah, come on, it's tough for me. It's hard, it's hard, it's this. Why not? It's too hard. Okay, why don't you come to the shore at least uh, at least two out of the three every week? No, come on, it's tough. It's, I'll try to make to one. Everybody can't do it. Everybody has this mentality that when it comes to Kedusha, comes to, 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 to achieving Shlemut, no, no, that's only for the tzaddikim. You tell somebody, listen, you have to be modest. Yeah, I'm trying. What do you mean you're trying? A mini skirt you're trying? Your clothes are tight enough to be, make people think it's a second layer of skin you're trying? Oh, I'm at my own level. You're at your level. Don't judge me. I'm not judging you. I'm just telling, just telling you why you're being a loser. 
Why are you torturing your own neshama? What did the neshama do to you? What did the neshama do to you that you're torturing it so much with sins? Why? Why are you torturing your neshama? Your neshama is tzaddik, tzaddikah. It was perfect before you ruined it. Why? No, it's, uh, you know, I, I, no one really has an excuse. The reality is that everybody wants to be ambitious when it comes to business, but not ambitious when it comes to Avodat Hashem. The Mishnah here starts by telling you it's supposed to be ambitious by Avodat Hashem. You have to be ambitious in your serving of Hashem Barach. If you're not ambitious in your, in your serving of Hashem Barach, you've already lost. And the reason why, the Chidushe Arim says that the Yitzharah constantly whispers in a person's ear, I can't do it. It's too much. It's too much. I can't do it. You can't do it. You can't finish a Masechet. You can't finish the Shas. You can't write this. You can't write that. You can't understand what he's saying. You can't know. You can't learn this. You can't learn that. No, you're not ready. You're not ready to do this. You're not ready to do that. You're not ready to get married. So what are you going to do? Stay single and miserable? You're not ready to get married. No, no, you're still too young. You're only 20 years old. So what are you supposed to do? Continue wasting seed and destroying the Shema for another 5, 10 years? Until you're mamash for sure guaranteed getting home forever? Like what? What are you supposed to do? No, you're not ready. You're not ready for this. You're not ready for that. The Yetzirah will always tell you you're not ready to be holy. The Yetzirah is always going to tell you all of these big things. They're for other people, much bigger than you. They're for the Ravavadyas of the world. They're for the Baba Sali. They're for all the big tzaddikim. They're not for you. you you're here. You're where you are. You're here. You're, you're a little guy. Wrong. Wrong. You are who you believe you are. If you believe that you are nothing, you'll end up being nothing. If you believe that you're something, eventually you'll become something. But not if you're something just in your imagination and you do nothing about it. Hence the reason why the Mishnah picked an animal like the leopard that's very active and not a turtle. Yusharim says, dream the impossible and then do it. Now for all of those people that say that they're always tired, they're tired to do mitzvot, they're tired to wake up in the morning, they're tired to study at night. They're tired to come to the shul. They're tired to take notes. They're tired to finish the shas. They're tired to do this. They're tired to do that. There's a pasuk in the Torah for anyone that doesn't want to make excuses anymore. Wants to do tshuva for excuses. Rabbeinu Yonah says, Rabbeinu Yonah says, if you notice, it says, Eve'az. Eve'az means be bold, but also, it also means be tireless. Be tireless in your pursuit of Torah and mitzvot, like the prophet Isaiah said in chapter 40, verse 31, Koveh Hashem yachalifu koach, meaning 
those whose hope is in Hashem will have renewed strength, which is the reason why you see that people that are ambitious for Torah, that push their bodies to the limit, achieve things that seem impossible. For example, if you ever saw some of the tzaddikim and how much they achieved in their life, you wouldn't think that a team of people were able to achieve this stuff. For example, there was one time a journalist, and I told you guys this story before, a journalist that said that Rabbi Vadya Alava Shalom was getting old and most likely forgetful. So he's unreliable to listen to. So Rabbi Vadya Alava Shalom invited this journalist to his house and he said, uh, why, what made you say that I'm uh, forgetful and I have a bad memory? He says, Kvodarab, you're already in your 80s. It's a given. He goes, yeah, but do you have any real reason? Do you have any proof? He goes, no, I don't have any proof. He goes, can we test it? Can we test this thing? Can you test my memory? He goes, Kvodarab, hey, no, come on. You, know, it's, you don't want me to embarrass you. I'm going to write another story that now I have evidence. I already wrote the story. Let it go. Goes, no, no, no. I want to check it. Maybe I have bad memory. Maybe you're right. It's Allah. I have to do it Allah. If I'm not reliable, I'm not allowed to be the, the head rabbi of Amisai anymore. I'm not allowed to be part of the Bedin anymore. I'm not allowed to do anything anymore. So if I have bad memory, this carries weight. I need to know. The journalist was convinced. And he said, look, these all these books, pick any one you want. Just tell me the title of the book. Who wrote it? Open the book anywhere you want and tell me the first word on the top right. The journalist was confused and dumbfounded. Why? Because he saw that the Ravavadya had between 40 to 60,000 books. He had no walls, he had books. 40 to 60,000 books. Now, just to give you an understanding of what it means, forty to 60,000 books, Rabbi Ephraim, when I went to his house in Arnov, before he moved recently, his room of Limud, where he learns, has somewhere around 3,000 books. It's about half the size of this room, and there's no walls. The books go up from the floor all the way to the ceiling, all the way to the ceiling, and there's some also on the top of the desk and on top of the chairs. There's not enough shelf space for the books. And this is just a three, just 3,000 books. Just. So imagine what 60,000 books looks like. Who has time to even know the title of 60,000 books? Let alone read them? He told them, no, no, not just read them. You go pick one. Tell me the title. Tell me the author. And, tell, and open the book any way you want. Tell me the first word. One word. So the journalist went and climbed the shelves with the ladder. He went into the back of one of them to make sure it's still dusty. Because if it's still dusty, that means he hasn't gone over it recently. He may have gone over it in the past. He's a Talmud Chacham after all. But it's probably, I don't know, maybe five years ago, ten years ago. It's been a while. If it's dusty, it means it's been a while. So he takes one of the books from the back, shh, reaches his arm, like Batya in the door of Parah, reaches the arm, 15 Amot, takes one in the back, opens the book, he tells the title, tells the day, tells the first word, and Rabbi Vadya Allah continues to say word for word, every single word on that page. 
the journalist that was secular had the shock of his life. He didn't know what to do with himself, so he picked another book, just in case, and he did it again. And Ravavadya, word for word, whatever page he picked, on some book he hasn't seen in years, out of 60,000 books, word for word, where knows the whole thing. Now you're probably going to say, yeah, yeah, but he had good memory. He had good memory, that's why. A lot of people have good memory. Do you know any one of them that knows 600 books by heart? Forget 600, 60. Forget 66. Six books by heart. One book by heart. Other than the phone book for the people that are, uh, uh, you know, uh, idiot savants. Regardless of memory or not, it requires an enormous amount of toiling, an enormous amount of work, an enormous amount of effort, very little sleep, very little olamazeh, and so on and so forth. But if somebody came to you and said, listen, here, here's a gift, 60,000 books. Here's a gift, go, bechavod, enjoy. You may have a heart attack. Why? It's like, this is too big for me. Get discouraged. I can't do this. I can't do 60,000. Give me one book. I'm having a hard time. I had this one time, this Talmud. I told him, listen, you want to do this, you want to do that. Okay, you have to read books. I'm going to send you a list of books, 15 books. You have to read these books. A year later, he came back to me with, I finished the first book. I said, okay, no problem. You're going to finish your conversion in 50 years from now. It takes you a year to finish one tiny little book. Maybe you'll finish it because the other books are bigger. You'll finish your conversion in 50 years from now. Mashiach is going to come back a few times. Maybe he'll pick you up on one of the stops. It requires work, Rabotai. It requires work. Now, what if you see 60,000 books? The Mishnah here says, don't be discouraged. You can do it. You can do all of it. But it all starts with the first word. And the title. And then the first page. And the second page. And the third page. And you keep going. Shoot for it. Go for it. Don't think, no, no. Only Rabbi Vadya was able to do it. Only uh, the Gaumi Vilna was able to do it. Only Moshe Rabbeinu was going to be able to do it. The reality is, is, if you hear stories about any one of them, all of them are the same to us. All of them are as distant as the sun from us. Rabbi Vadya, Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, Moshe Rabbeinu, it's all the same. Meaning, they're so much bigger than us, we can't even like, measure who, what, when, we're nothing. Still the Mishnah tells you, you can be just like them. How? Be bold with your spirituality. Go for it. You can finish the entire Shas, no problem. That brings me back, that brings me to another thought as a segue, something that I'm asking you guys. I see that, Baruch Hashem, several of you are advancing with the Gemara, finishing the Masechets. We have a tradition that we do in Israel, and maybe we're going to take it on in America, that we have a group of people taking on the Shas every year. Each person on, uh, on Purim, on Purim, each person signs up to say, I'm going to do this Masechet, this Masechet, whatever Masechet he takes on as a responsibility to finish during that year. And each person needs to know himself and how much he can do and how much he's willing to do and how much he's willing to push himself and so on. 
And uh, with that, we try to get a group of people that between all of them, they finish, we finish the entire Shas every year. Baruch Hashem, we've been doing it for the last few years. And sometimes when somebody's not able to make it, we get somebody else to make up for them. But the point being is that if you're going to take something on, you have to be able to, to, do, to do it. Because the whole group is relying on you. So if everybody finishes their Masechet, and let's say you took on Masechet Shabbat, and you didn't finish, now everybody's Shas is incomplete because of you. So the point is that with Bezat Hashem, we do it already in Israel for several years. Uh, we're going to Bezat Hashem try to do it in America also. Anyone that's interested, already start thinking about it now. You don't have to commit anything today or tomorrow or next week. But already start thinking about it now. Whether you can do it, meaning whether you are bold enough to do it. Can, you can. Whether you're bold enough to do it and take something seriously. Uh, and be responsible. Uh, and two, whether you want to be part of something so extraordinary. So that's something as a food for thought. Back to the Mishnah. And we're almost done in this part. And then we'll finish it next week. Because it's just late already. Um, the Rambam, the Rambam says that this boldness can also be viewed in another way. What other way? It says this boldness it should be in admonishing people that go against Hashem. Rebuking people. This boldness is supposed to be where you are not supposed to be afraid to tell somebody, hey, buddy, you gotta do tshuva. I saw you drive on Shabbat. You gotta do tshuva. Hey, honey, I love you. You're my sister. Everything. Yeah, yeah. You gotta put some clothes on, buddy. You gotta put some clothes on. You're causing men to sin. What do I care what they look at? You may not care, but you're going to care later on. You're going to care later on. There's no reason for you to walk around with barely any clothes on. For all of those fools that think that it makes you, uh, because it's too hot outside, whether you have long sleeve on and short sleeve on, it's still hot. Nothing changes. Nothing changes. In fact... Most people that are actually modest rarely complain about heat. So the Rambam is saying, actually this, this boldness is to make sure that you do not become weak because it's your friend. And you don't feel like rebuking your friend because you're scared of hurting the relationship. Oh, so you're going to let your friend go to Gainom because you're afraid of hurting the relationship? Saddest excuse, you're the worst friend in America. People are afraid to tell their brother and sister and, and friends and colleagues to do tshuva because they're afraid it may ruin the relationship. No, no, I have, you know, we have a good rapport. What good rapport? Yeah, we have a drink once in a while, we chit-chat. You know, he comes over for Pesach. Okay, so he comes over with a car on Pesach. He eats chametz after he leaves your house. He, uh, he violates Shabbat. What kind of rapport is that? You know what he's going to do to you when you get up to Shemaim? He's going to drown you in the same lava he's boiling in. Why? Because it's your fault he didn't do tshuva. You knew it. He didn't, you didn't share it with him. Why? Yeah, but I don't know what to say. Okay, so don't say it. Here, there's a free CD. This guy called himself Rabbi Yaron Reuven. Give it to the guy. You have a hand? Hashem gave you two of them? Use one of them. Give it to the guy. Oh, he doesn't have a CD player. Okay, you have that same hand? Okay, let me show you. 
Take that same hand, press, go to the lecture, press share. Don't make excuses. Don't make excuses. You can get people to do tshuva. All you have to do is care. All you have to do is be bold. Don't be afraid of hurting anything. It's much, much worse if you don't do it. It's much, much worse if you don't do it. The Bet HaMikdash was destroyed because people were not bold enough to rebuke. The tool who wrote one of the most important Allahic books in history unlike the Rambam who wrote the Yad Chazakah which was 14 books of Allahas that had covered the entire Torah including things that are not things that we can use anymore today because we don't have a Bet HaMikdash so he has Allahas uh, in regards to Avodat Bet HaMikdash Korbanot and so on you can't really use these things they're not practical for today but eventually we'll need them the two wrote his Allahot in four books and the only things that he considered Lema'ase, things that are applicable to his day now he begins his book with this Mishnah. This book that's about Allah, the series of books about Allah, about how to serve Hashem, what to do, when to wash your hands, when not to wash your hands, when to go to the bathroom, you're obligated, when not, when to eat this, when to eat that, when to pray, when not to pray, and so on and so forth. He begins his, he begins the first tool, he begins the first book with this Mishnah. With this Mishnah saying in Orachayim 1, right in the beginning, it says, Yehuda ben Tema begins the words, Be bold as a leopard in this Mishnah, since this is a cardinal principle in serving God. Because very often a person wants to perform a mitzvah, but he stops himself from doing the mitzvah because he's embarrassed from people that will make fun of him. Therefore, he is enjoined to assume the air obstinacy against such and not refrain from forming the mitzvah, performing the mitzvah. In so many words, the tool in his four books in the introduction. He says there are certain people that want to do a mitzvah. They want to do a mitzvah. She wants to put kisui loshan. She wants to. She saw, listen, wig's not allowed. Number one, there's a modesty issue. Number two, there's avodazarai issue. There's problems. She wants to put a mitpachat. She wants to put a kosher mitpachat or a kosher uh, hat, cover her hair like a righteous Jewish woman, but she knows that one of her friends at the shul, at the JCC, at the this, at the that, and tell, what are you, the Ben Ishchai? Why are you wearing this shmata on your head? 
What'd you become? Rambam? She's a jokester. She'll make fun of her. She's wearing Kisui Losh. She says, what'd you just come from uh, from Yemen? You're Ashkenazi like me. You're American like me. You're German like me. You're this like me. What are you putting? That's Minaga Motenu. The Lubavitcher Rebbe said this, said that, said all these different things. So she wants to do the mitzvah. She wants to put the Kisui Losh on. But she's afraid of her friend that's going to make fun of her. She wants to start wearing long skirts to cover her body to be a modest kosher woman. She wants to wear long sleeve dresses and shirts and so on to cover her body to not show every fala chabari, every person that just uh, walks in the shuk in the uh, in the market to see her to show her. Why, why am I why am I sharing my body with people? Why? She wants to become modest, but she's afraid. Why? She's afraid. People say, what, did you become a nun? They have all these names. Yetzirah has a lot of names. Name calling. And people are afraid to be embarrassed. They're afraid to be embarrassed. So first and foremost, you should know, somebody that does something like that, that makes fun of another person, that does tshuva, that covers themselves, that starts keeping Shabbat, that starts keeping mitzvot, that starts learning and stops hanging out, is trying to become shalem with Hashem, trying to become complete with Hashem. But you're trying to stop him. That, that person is trying to stop him. Oy lo. What a problem that person has. In Shemaim? Oh, what a genom that person is going to have. It's going to be a genom that starts and never ends. Because he's considered a mean. He's considered the worst definition in the entire Torah. He's considered one of these people. It's Machtia Rabim. That the Rambam says is one of the classes of people that Hashem does not welcome their tshuva so easily. If they want to do tshuva, they have to do it themselves. He doesn't help them. To such an extent that if they want to do tshuva, it's safek if you're even allowed to help them or not. Rambam's opinion, not allowed to help them. The Chafetz Chaim says you should pray for them to die. People like this. Yeah, but she also wears, uh, she also keeps Shabbat. It's Shabbat. What Shabbat? Very dangerous, very dangerous. It's always better to be quiet. Always better to be quiet. If you don't have a pasuk or, or some type of mishnah or some type of halacha in your mouth, you don't have something, better off not to say anything. Why? Most likely it's garbage what you're going to say. Now for the people that want to do tshuva that are scared of people, you're scared of the shechina but not the shechina. You're scared of the neighbor but not the shemit barach. That's what this, the tool the Balatul says that's where you have to be bold. Forget them. Forget them. As a matter of fact, don't even consider their opinion as an opinion. If you care about them, you should do the mitzvah even better. Why? Because if you don't, the amount of punishment they're going to get for stopping you, you might as well be their enemy. 
if they cause you to not do a mitzvah, you're not being friends with them. You're not showing them love. You're not showing them respect. In fact, it's the opposite. So it's strange, but in reality, if you want to help them out, do the mitzvah even better. Not only wear a kisush, tell the whole world about it. Yeah, wear a kisush, what do you think? Ask her, what do you think? Oh, I don't like it. Yeah, you'll like it eventually. You'll like it eventually. You have to be bold in Abu Hashem. You have to be bold. But not bold and delusional. Bold and mamash, go after, go after the emet, go after the emet, go after what Hashem Baruch commanded you. Because that is the type of strength you're going to need in order to survive the days of Mashiach. The Rambam says that before Mashiach comes, there's going to be a lot of, a lot of problems, a lot of confusion. Erev Rav is going to run the world. Erev Rav sometimes has a beard and a hat. Sometimes it's having a gay parade. Sometimes it's uh, running in a government. Sometimes it's a very successful businessman. Erev Rav has all different types of faces. Sometimes it's your best friend. Sometimes it's a relative. Sometimes it's somebody that you thought was really a nice person, but in reality, the Amalek. Erev Rav comes in and is going to cause a lot of confusions. The only way you're going to survive Rabotai is if we learn from the father of the Mashiach. Who? David Melech. We're going to finish here with this Pasuk because this Pasuk will give you some things to think about for the next few days until we have our next you. David Melech says, וַדַבְרָה בְּאֶדֹתֶהָ נֶגֶד מֶלָּחִים וְלֹאֶבֹשׁ וְאֶשְׁתַּעֲשֵׁה בְּמִצְוֹתֶהָ אֲשֶׁר אָעַפְתִי וְאֶשָׁה כָּפָי אֶל מִצְוֹתֶהָ אֲשֶׁר אָעַפְתִי וְאֲשִׁיחָה בְּחֻקֹּתֶהָ David Amalekh in Psalm number 119, the longest Psalm, verse 45, he says to Hashem, And I will walk in the broad pathways, for I have sought your precepts. I will speak of your testimonies, meaning I'll speak Torah, before kings. And I will not be ashamed. I will be preoccupied with your commandments that I love. And I will lift my hands to your commandments which I love, and I will discuss your statues. Now, of course, David HaMelech, Kodesh Kodeshim, the fact that he's telling Hashem, oh, I'm going to learn Torah, good for you. Like, what are you writing a Tehilim about it? What's such a big deal? You wrote it already a few other times. You wrote it a few other times. What's the difference here? What's so different about this one? If you actually notice, David Melech says here, I will speak of your testimonies, I will speak your Torah in front of kings. What does it mean in front of kings? What do you mean I'm going to actually say the Torah in front of kings? David HaMelech says, I'm going to, they're going to invite me because I'm a king. They're going to invite me to the United Nations. They're going to invite me to the UN, a UN meeting. And in the UN, each, each king, each president, each prime minister, what does he do over there? He tells everybody else, listen, our army, strong. We just add another 5,000 soldiers in this place, another 15,000 there. We have a new missile system. This missile system will kill all of you guys if I want. This missile system is the best. By the way, it's for sale. And this one. 
and everybody's showing, flexing their muscles. And we have these new tanks, and we have these new computers, and we have this new this, and we have new bridge, and we have new mountain, and new tunnel, and we are, we're good. And everybody's flexing their muscles in front of each other. You have 70 nations each flexing their muscles. And then they're all going to say to me, David HaMelech, they say, oh, no, David, so what do you have to say? And David HaMelech is going to say, you know what, guys? I have this chidush. Let me tell you about it. What a chidush I have. When it says, when Avraham Avinu, it says, in the parasha, it says about Avraham Avinu, it says that Hashem Barach blessed Hashem bakol. He blessed Hashem with everything. Now most people see the pshat saying, oh, he blessed, he blessed Avraham with everything. That means Avraham Avinu was very rich with a lot of money. But also the sages explain, Bakol was also a name for his daughter. So Bakol means he was rich with money and possessions and honor and so on. But it was also the name that he gave his daughter. And why did he cry a little bit at the time of Sarai Menu's death? It's because he cried a little bit for Sarah. And he cried a little bit for his daughter. They both died on the same day. What a chidush. Now the guy from Pakistan, the guy from India, the guy from Zimbabwe, the guy from Saudi Arabia, Donald Trump and his friends from America, and all these people are like, what are you talking about, David? What chidush? What is, what is this Torah you're talking about? What's your missile system? What's your... What do you have? What are you talking How much money do you guys have? How many computers do you have? How much is your army? This, that. What you chidush? What's this chidush? Look where you're at, David. Look where you're standing. And David says, Oh, you're right. You're right. Usually... I don't come here. Usually I go, my, I'm supposed to come here, I'm a, I'm a king. But what am I, what could I do that my legs bring me to the kolal every day? Today I'm only here by accident. Today I'm, it's an accident that I'm here. So I figure, since I'm already here, give you guys a chidush. I have to continue to publicizing the Torah. Yeah, but what about the missiles? What missiles? I have Hashem. What about the money? What money? I have Hashem. You're not embarrassed that you're sharing your Torah with a bunch of people that are, don't care, don't want it, don't like it, don't this. He goes, you don't like it? Why wouldn't you like Torah? Why wouldn't you like Torah? What's the matter with you? You're sick? Maybe I'll pray for you. What's your mom's name? What's your mom? Why you don't like Torah? Maybe, what's, your, what's your mom's name? I'll pray for you. David Amech did not understand why anybody would not fall in love with Torah. That's supposed to be us. That's supposed to be us. Each one of us is supposed to always have a nice chidush waiting right in that chamber. Right in that chamber. As soon as you have an opportunity, somebody says, how are you? I have a nice chidush for you. I have a nice chidush for you. It doesn't actually have to be a chidush like you, you, you made it. You're part of the... Uh, no. Something you learned that day. Rashi says over here. Tosfot says this. This one says this. You heard about it? No, I never heard about it. What do you think? Well, I think it's good, but I didn't really come for that. I, just, I want to ask you if you could lend me 20 bucks. Okay, no, I'll give you the 20 bucks. Let me get another chidush. Be like Avraham Avinu. Avraham Avinu invited all the people to his house, not because he wanted to give them food, because he wanted to give them a chidush. He said, listen, you finished the food, you liked it, you're happy, satisfied? Okay, listen, you have two options. One, you can do Birkat Amazon and thank the creator of the world. Two, you can pay me $150, which is what it cost. 
That's what we're supposed to be. That's what we're supposed to be, Rabotai. You're supposed to always have something in your mind. How are you going to have something in your mind if you don't learn Torah every day? How are you going to have something in your mind if you don't learn Torah every day? How? How? What are you going to say to him? Oh, you know what? Come, let's watch a video together. No, he doesn't have time to watch a video together. You have to be quick. Why? You may be saving his life with this chidush. And last but not least, this will also help you become bold in your avodat Hashem. If you start spreading Torah, you will slowly but surely become a proud Jew, a real proud Jew. Not the Jew that pretends to be a Jew because he wears a kippah. Not a, not a Jew that pretends to be a Jew because he donates money to the IDF. Or a Jew that pretends that he's a Jew because he wears a tzitzit once in a while. A Jew that's proud to be a Jew is a Jew that's actually delivering words of Torah wherever he can. Yeah, but it's hard for me to speak. Okay, it's a train. If you live in this world, you need to know how to speak. Maybe you don't need to necessarily be a public speaker, but you need to know how to speak. Say three, four, five, six words. Say two sentences. Tell your wife, honey, can you make me dinner? Yes, thank you. Okay, just like you said, honey, can you make me dinner? Say, honey, did you hear what Rashi said? No. Okay, Rashi said, da, da, da. That's it, same thing. It's not such a big deal. You have to learn how to publicize Hashem's Torah. Why? That's going to help you not only show gratitude for His Torah, not only sanctify His name with His Torah, but also you yourself become proud, being proud of what you are. Be proud of what you are. Share the Torah with the world. Bezat Hashem, this will become like a good type of sickness. When you start sharing it, your kids start sharing it, your friends start sharing it, everyone's going to come every day and start sharing. Instead of it just being one-on-one, it become everybody wants to share Torah. You heard this, you heard this, you heard this, you heard this. And Bezat Hashem, you start sanctifying Hashem's name day and night. Hashem says, if not for my covenant day and night, the rules of the world will cease to exist. Bezat Hashem, you will be the reason why the world exists because you have constantly something to say. I heard this in a shiur. I heard this in a video. I heard this, I saw this in a book. You have something to say to your kids. You have something to say to your husband, to your wife, to yourself. You have something to say. You always have some words of Hashem in your mouth instead of the shtuyot that we talk about all day. Oh, you like that dress? Oh, what do you think of him? Oh, you like that house? Oh, what do you think of that car? What about the stock market? Who cares? Let's be like David Amelech. Be proud of who we are. Sanctify Hashem Barach. And Bezat Hashem, when the Mashiach arrives, when his son arrives, when the son of David arrives, he's ah, yeah, it's you. You're the one that's publicizing my Torah. Come, come, come. You're good. You've been publicizing Torah nonstop. Come, I'll show you. Let me show you the Mount Olives. Let me show you. Why? Publicizing Torah is the best thing in the world. Bezat Hashem, next week we're going to continue with this Mishnah. It's just a, uh, obviously, as you can see, this Mishnah can go deeper and deeper. We can go into this Mishnah for years. But uh, hopefully we covered enough to give us a little bit to think about and to do tshuva over over the next few days. Any questions? Same price. You're all tired.
supposed to, the whole shiur was about you not being tired. It's not working. I'm not that good of a teacher here. The what? The last part again? Yes. Exception to the rule. Well, I mean, when you have a threshold, you have threshold with good things, you have threshold with bad things. So, the Yetzirah tries to influence a person to constantly push him further. But the Yetzirah is not going to come to you and tell you to murder on day one. So the Gemara Masechet Shabbat says that a person that uh, acts out on his anger should be considered as if he's worshipping an idol. Why? It says because if he acts out on his anger and he takes money and he throws it in the air out of anger or he throws something in, the, in a rock or something or he breaks something out of anger that means he's already at a point where he's become a loyal servant to the Yetzirah, the Satan the Malach HaMavit. And the problem with that is that today the Satan the Malach HaMavit tells you, get angry about nonsense. The next day he's going to tell you, don't only get angry, but express your anger. The next day he's going to tell you, don't only get angry and express your anger, but express your anger in a violent way. And then the next day he tells you, don't only get angry, express your anger, and express your anger in a violent way, but get really violent. And little by little, your threshold keeps getting further and further and further. So the question that Chachamim would ask, why doesn't the Yetzirah right away just go to the guy who says, listen, the guy ticked you off, kill him. Why didn't you just tell the guy right off the bat, kill the guy, that's it, finish. Why do I have to train this guy every day, get angry, get more angry, then throw something, then yell, then punch, then this, then kill him. Why? Why does it have to be the whole thing? Because the Yetzirah knows that you're not that evil right away. He has to train you to become evil, like he trains a dog. So initially, he tells you get angry about nothing. You've listened, good dog, gives you a little treat. Now again, another anger, okay, this time, do more. Oh, good dog, give you another treat, another treat, another treat. Little by little... It's like this, the, 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 psych, the uh, uh, psychiatrist or psychologist that did studies on, the, uh, on different things, Pavlov dog. Every time the guy eventually trained the dog that every time he would ring the bell, the dog would salivate. Because initially, he would train him that every time the, do- the, dog would, uh, uh, the door will be- doorbell would ring, he would give him food. So eventually he trained him to just by the doorbell he would salivate. That's the etzerah. Yetzirah is training you little by little to become mamash, become like him, become Hitler. So that's why the Gemara says, if you listen to him to that extent, that you're going to act out your anger, that already means you're a student of his. And eventually he's going to tell you, okay, you've acted out your anger, you've acted out this, you've acted out that, okay, come, come worship JCPenney. Come worship an idol. And you're already such a loyal servant, when you're going to say, no, 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 it's too far. There's no too far. Why? Because your threshold has slowly but surely got you there. 
where now it's only a push away. It's not that far anymore. In the beginning, it was a world apart. But you kept pushing that threshold, you kept pushing that threshold with more and more sins, and you got to a point where eventually Shem worshipped an idol. The same token works on mitzvot. Yetzirah also works on your mitzvot. Where he's constantly telling you, no, no, this is too much. This is too much. So every time you push yourself, he tells you, okay, it's too much. So over here, stop over here. No more. No more. So now you finished uh, daf. Took you th- six hours to finish one daf. Kamara. He says, okay, it's enough. Next thing you do, another daf. Okay, enough with the dafim. Uh, two dafim already, that's it. You know, it's... The Chachamim already said that one daf is enough for a lifetime, no? Enough. Every daf is struggle. Every, and then you finish a masechet, you'll notice right before you finish a masechet, all the kaparat of a not happens. Why? Because you finish a masechet, it's like killing a piece of the Yetzirah himself. It's like killing a Yetzirah himself. So, that, so he's going to try to do whatever he can to delay it. He's going to send you strange neighbors, strange guests, strange problems, IRS letters, no, all types of strange things are always going to happen right before you finish a masechet. Anytime you're about to complete anything holy, Yetzirah comes with full army, full force. Don't complete it. Because until you complete it, it's almost like you didn't do it. That's why, by the way, there's something called Siyum Masechet, where everybody co- comes to the Siyum. Everybody comes to the completion of the masechet, because if you read the last couple of lines with the guy that read the whole thing, it's as if you completed it too. Not really, but really. You understand? It's like you're almost complete. Because to, to complete something, once you complete a mitzvah, the mitzvah is called after you. That's why even though Hashem gave the first six laws to all of creation, to Adam Rishon, He gave the seventh one to Noach. And that's why it's called seven mitzvah, Sheva Mitzvah B'nai Noach. The seven laws of Noach. But He gave the six first ones to Adam Rishon. Why isn't it called... The seven laws of uh, of uh, Adam Rishon, because Noah got the last one. Noah got the last one. He completed. It's called after him. So the same thing comes with kedusha. The Yetzirah is going to constantly try to tell you that enough, enough. Don't push more. Don't push more. So it's the opposite effect. So every time you try to push against him with the threshold, he's going to tell you, okay, you did good enough. You beat me up, but up to here, you can't do more than this because. More than this, only Tamidei Chachamim can learn another Masechet. Only big Tzadikim can watch their eyes. Only big Chachamim, Tzadikim, Kedoshim, Moshe Rabbeinu, Rabbi Akiva, and all the ones in between them can uh, watch their breed. Only they can. It's not relevant for this generation. You're still young. You're still healthy. You're only in your 20s. Catch up later on. And it'll give you... That's your threshold. You can learn Gemara. You can learn this, you can learn that, but don't get into the wasting seed part. And that's actually, I heard one time the Sfarim HaKadoshim saying the Zohar Kadosh says that the Tikkun of the last generation is wasting seed. Why? The Satan literally will allow a person to get to all thresholds. Learn Gemara, keep Shabbat, keep mitzvot, keep everything, and it'll even help them. Go, focus on those things. Go to the Shiur, go this, go that. Wasting seed, no chance. I'm not going to let you do it. Why? That's the tikkun, abrit. Tikkun for the entire generation. I'm going to destroy you, the Satan says, to this one avera. You kept Shabbat, you kept mitzvot, you kept everything, you learned Gemara, you taught Gemara, you taught Gemara, you taught people Gemara. You're a teacher, you have shurim on Torah anytime. 
You're uh, this, you're that, you wrote books, you're everything. You waste seed, it's all zero. To that extent, the Satan even helps certain people do everything else, focus on that. Focus on writing books, focus on Allah for Shabbat, Allah for Netidat Yadayim, Allah for Fetrogim, Allah for Shlom Bayit, even though everyone's getting divorced anyway. Allah of all the other things. Don't teach. Don't teach any of that. Why? That's how I'm going to destroy everyone. Satan says. Rabbi, what if there's a legitimate reason to get angry? Let's say you're a religious guy in Jerusalem and they're having these these parades. Yeah. And that that makes you angry. Being angry and expressing anger are two different things. You're supposed to be angry if you see people that are going against Hashem. That's a normal thing to do. That's also part of zealous zealousness. But to express anger in a physical way is not allowed. That already turned that mitzvah into an avera. You have no permission from the Torah to become violent as a result of your anger. No permission from the Torah. So even though they're disgusting, filthy human beings that are enemies of Hashem, you still have no right and no permission from the Torah to kill them, to touch them, even to, 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 to do anything to them. You bring more kedusha to the world. A lot of people want to, you know, have you know, their own protest, protesting against them. If you can arrange a civil protest where you're going to be civil and not violent, that's one thing. In reality, most protests end bad. That's why the big hachamim, you're never going to see them at those protests. What do they do? They tell themselves and their students, stay home, learn Torah. Why? The only way to beat the tum'ah of the world, the impurity of the world, is by bringing Kedusha to the world. That's the only way. Having a protest against them is not going to help you anyway. It's not going to help you. You want to have certain people that uh, are wasting their time anyway, go protest against it, go ahead. But if you're Talmit Chacham, you have no, no permission to go to such a place. Either way, even if you go to a protest and you want to yell and you want to scream and you want to have these big signs and so on and so forth, and you have permission from your Rav to do it, you still are never ever going to get permission to touch anyone. Never. You're still never ever ever going to get a permission to curse anyone. Or curse even at all. Why? Because we learned yesterday from the Torah, Muhammad Sechet Shabbat, page 33a, talks about how a person could literally lose 70 years of blessings that were decreed for him in Shemaim with a single curse word. So you think you're doing a mitzvah by saying, Hey, you, you think you're doing a mitzvah by insulting the guy. In reality, there's no mitzvah. There's no mitzvah at all. It's actually an avera. You're destroying yourself. It's like drinking poison expecting the other guy to die. doesn't work. So, the way to fight the tum'ah of the world, the homosexuality, the intermarriage, the chilul Hashem, the Chilul uh, Torah, all of this stuff is by bringing more Kedusha to the world. Use your time to learn Torah, publicize Torah, finance Torah. That's how you, that's how you beat it. Anything else, show me one source that tells me it's the right thing. It doesn't. This doesn't exist. You're not going to see Rav Ovadia show up at one of those uh, protests. Why? Because he's learning Torah. 
You're not going to see Rabbi Yashiv at one of those protests. You're not going to see the Rav Kanievsky at one of those protests. Of course, there are some Chachamim that had protests, but their protests were very different than the protests we have today. Their protests were to do Kiddush Hashem, to sanctify the Torah, to stand up for the Torah in the name of the Torah. Today's protest is just a bunch of people that want to beat up another guy and they want to have, a, they have an excuse to fight. It's not, it's not, it has nothing to do with anything. It has nothing to do with Torah. It has to do with homophobia and ego. Yes, Pinchas followed Alakha in the Torah, Gemara Masechet Sanhedrin, page eighty-two A, says that the Pinchas saw that Zimri and Cosby were intimate, and he told Moshe Rabenu that isn't there an Alakha that if you're a zealous person and you see a Jew, in the act, not after, and not a minute before, in the act, you see them in the act, while they're in the act, you see them intimate, a Jew and a non-Jew, you see them, if you're a zealous person for Hashem at all times, you're allowed to kill them, you're, actually, you're obligated to kill them, Moshe says, you're right, you fulfill that mitzvah. And Pinchas, Ben Elazar, Ben Aaron Kohen saw them in the act, and the Gemara says he killed them during the act by putting the spear miraculously in the actual, where the act was happening. Where the act, in those, in the sex organs. And then it went through the other part of the body, killing them, and then he got the miraculous power to literally lift them like a flag and show all of Am Yisrael what's happening. Now, the Torah also says that no one ever existed like him after that. So no one has the right to do it. Number one, even if you saw somebody do such a thing, you still don't have the right to do it because you're not zealous like Pinchas. But there is such an halacha that exists, but there was a one-time case, one-time scenario that happened 3,300 years ago. Other than that, nothing like that ever happened again. Other than like that, nothing has the permission to do that. Um... But again, it's a uh, people that believe their pinchas by going against homosexuals or going against uh, you know uh, other things like that. The only question that I have is that how come you're not so zealous about chilul shabbat? How come you're not so zealous about uh, you know chilul uh, Hashem in other places, in other aspects? You know, so a person can't just be zealous on one mitzvah. He has to be zealous on everything. And that's also why it's not healthy for anyone to focus on one particular issue. There's sometimes there's certain uh, speakers that speak on a specific topic over and over and over and over again. That's everything revolves around that one topic. And it's not healthy for them to do that because it becomes gets to a point where not only are they known for that particular topic in a negative way, where it's almost like obsession, but on top of it, they actually get to a point where they start hating people instead of hating the sin. So I actually heard something that wasn't really comforting at all uh, the other day where somebody told me, listen, one of uh, your students is on a shiduch, but the woman wants to wear a wig. And uh, I told him, listen, your rabbi, meaning me, 
He's not going to accept it. He's, that's, his, that's his thing, wigs. I said, what do you mean that's my thing, wigs? He goes, you talk about wigs all the time. I said, I talk about wigs. I don't talk about thick wigs all the time. But, oh, Hashem, I have hundreds of shurim that are not about wigs. But already it shows that there are certain things that certain people that didn't watch many of the shurim and happened to only watch that particular shurim can say, oh, that's the wig person. So it's not, it's not, it's not healthy for anyone to, Baruch Hashem, it's very easy to disprove this and to show that Baruch Hashem, I have hundreds of shurim, not about wigs, but it's really, really important for a person not to focus on one particular thing because that could lead to obsession and it could start perverting your thoughts. It starts perverting your thoughts where every time automatically you see a person with a wig, you assume they know, you assume they're reshaim, you assume they're the worst person in the world, you hate them for no reason. The person may not know. You're not allowed to hate the sinner. You have to hate sin. Unless the sinner is an intentional sinner, that's an intentional kofel, like this Yaakov guy that I told you guys from Queens, Imach Shimo Bezicho. That guy, that's, that's a walking chilul Hashem, that guy. That guy is a kofel, that's a alachate, it's, it's, it's an obligation to hate him. Obligation to hate such a person. I'm not talking about I'm talking about just a regular Jew that's trying his best, trying her best, not allowed to hate them. Not allowed to. You have to love them and you have to try to help them. Being zealous does not mean ego, does not mean a bad thing. Being zealous means you love Hashem, and you obviously love His children. If you hate His children, you're not zealous for Hashem. You're just an egotistical person. But Rabbi, can't you argue that uh, there's three sins in the Torah, three cardinal sins that a person must kill his life, rather than transgress? Ken. Sexual morality is one of those. Ken. So, and that applies to the entire world, not just Jews. Ken. So, so can you say that, 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 uh, that a Jew has the right to be extra mad at this like I said, yes, there's three cardinal sins. It's You're not allowed to kill anybody to, to save your own life unless they're trying to kill you. You're not allowed to have intimate relations with anyone that's not permissible to you, whether it's a non-Jew or a woman that you're not married to or even your wife when she's nida or a homosexuality or incest or bestiality and so on. And you're not allowed to worship idols. Those are the three cardinal sins in the Torah. Now, the Torah says, what does it mean cardinal sins? It's better that you die and not sin. So if somebody brings you a JCPenney statue and says, kiss this guy and pray to him, you have to die and not do it. Somebody says, come to a church, to my wedding. Come to my wedding at the church where the priest is going to bless us. It's You have to die and not go. Or you can just avoid going. Whichever is easier for you. Uh, but you cannot go under any condition to a church, Jew or non-Jew. You cannot go to a place of worshipping idols. It doesn't matter whether it's a church in India or it's a church in, uh, in Quebec or it's a church in uh, New York. makes no difference. Um, same thing with immorality, with sex crimes and so on. It says you, it's better that you die and not make the sin. Now it says to the person, pay attention to what it says. It says it's better that you die and not make the sin. Not it's better you kill the guy before he sins. It doesn't give somebody else the right to kill them. Only the Sanhedrin has the right to kill anyone that goes against the capital punishment. The rest of the public has no right to deliver the capital punishment. So even if you see a uh, guy that's homosexual, you have no right to kill him. You have no right to touch him. You have no right to even curse him. 
You have no right. There's no, no. Uh, you're supposed to help him do tshuva, hopefully. So, of course, it's a disgusting act. The real problem is with people that express this publicly, that you know, uh, drive around with these flags and have these parades and so on. These are really, for the most part, enemies of Hashem, and it's easy to get angry at them. But still, you're allowed to be angry because the game is going against Hashem. But you're still not allowed to touch them. We don't have the Sanhedrin. We're not the Sanhedrin. So we're not allowed to exercise the, the capital law without having the Sanhedrin that are considering all the ramifications of it and so on and so forth. So, yes, being mad is a means that you're a normal Jewish person. But, normal person in general. But uh, to express that uh, anger, no permission from the Torah. No permission. Next. Yes. So I was thinking maybe there's a way to open marriage somehow. Things that you can do to be able to get the other Bishmaya to move yes. forward. Yes, there are things. Uh, some of them I've talked about before and some of them is the rest of this Mishnah. Uh, one thing that a person can do uh, to get a few things to get Siyati Bishmaya, to get express special assistance from heaven is number one is to learn a lot of Torah and push themselves, push their body to the limits. Don't ever say you're t- too tired to learn Torah. If you can learn another two minutes, learn two minutes. If you can learn another five minutes, learn five minutes. Show Hashem that you want it. Show Hashem that it's like gold to you. Don't like say, okay, if you still have 15 minutes in you before you go to sleep... Let's say, you know what, I'm just going to lay down and relax for a little bit and then go to sleep. No, you should. If you really want Torah, you're going to push yourself until you can't go anymore. That's really what someone who learns Torah wants to do. That's number one. So, to push yourself is number one. Show, you, show Hashem that you're treating His Torah like, like it's treasure. Same thing with His mitzvot. Go after His mitzvot like it's treasure. Second, do and support Kiruv in any way, shape, or form. Once you show Hashem that you care not only about His Torah but also about his children. You treat his children in a way that, like you treat your children, take care of them, you help them do tshuva, you save their lives. Hashem will give you special merits to such an extent that when you pray for something, Hashem says, you say it, I'll do it. Kepitiye. So he writes in the, the book of Jeremiah, says, Im mizolel kepitiye. If you bring um, a precious person that used to be a luggard, you'll be like my mouth. Meaning, I created the world with words, and you'll be the same. So, doing Kiruv is extraordinary way to get Siyad Bishmaya better than anything else I've ever seen. Anything I've ever heard of. Um, Obviously, giving uh, you know tzedakah uh, as much as you possibly can, being helpful to people, working on your midot, messi with nefesh in general. 
pushing yourself to the limits. Those are a few things that can help you as far as general things. More specific things have to do with this Mishnah, have to do with being an eagle, have to do with being a deer, have to do with being a lion. Those other animals specify other things that we can work on, other character traits that we can work on of the eagle, of the lion, of the deer, and so on. These specific characters are what's going to help us get this special siyata dishmaya, the special assistance from heaven, by pushing ourselves to be like them. Having those things. Not with other we'll talk about next week. What else? Rabbi, you're saying that, 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 that a Jew that doesn't keep Shabbat is worse than a murderer. Okay. The question is, how come then a Jew does not have to give up his life uh, to, to... Someone puts a gun in your head and says, violate Shabbat, you're allowed to. But if it's worse than murder, which is one of the three cardinal sins that you have to give up, uh, why, why do you have to give up your life? Very good question. Hamim asked the same question and said that uh, one of the cardinal sins is don't murder. So if, you, if somebody says, you, you know, kill this guy or I'll kill you, you have to die. Can't kill the other guy. But if they tell you, violate Shabbat or we'll kill you, you violate Shabbat. Why? Or if, let's say, for example, if somebody's sick, you want to take them to save their life, you take them to the hospital, it's a mitzvah to violate Shabbat. Why? <coughs> First off, when you violate Shabbat, when you violate Shabbat to go save a life, it's not that you violate Shabbat. You perform the mitzvah because you are helping a person live longer so they can keep more Shabbat. It's not that their life is more important than Shabbat. It's that the Shabbat is so important you want them to live for longer so that they keep more Shabbatot. So you put Shabbat on hold temporarily in order to get them out of danger for, you know, however long it's going to take you to get them out of danger, 15, 20 minutes, an hour, two hours of violating Shabbat or whatever it is to get to the hospital, once they're out of danger, you go back to keeping Shabbat instantly. Your rest of the Shabbat goes back to normal. Your Shabbat is only put on hold. It's not canceled. Why? Because you're trying to save their life because the Shabbat is so important that it's better off to put your Shabbat on hold in order for you and them, in order to, to keep more Shabbatot. So that's, in essence, when you're actually violating Shabbat, which really is not violating Shabbat, in order to save a life. Pikuach Nefesh, it's called. Now, in regards to somebody telling a person, violate Shabbat or we'll kill you, if they're doing it, just it's you and one person, one person tells you, violate Shabbat or I'll kill you, then you're allowed to violate Shabbat for, in essence, the same principle. The same principle of pikuach nefesh, you're saving yourself, you're putting it on hold for the sake of for the sake of keeping more Shabbatot in the future. But, a very big but, if they're doing it in public, meaning there are other people there that, say, that see it, and he says, violate Shabbat or we'll kill you, you have to die. In fact, even if he says, violate the minag, any minag, that's a valid minag of our forefathers, violate this minag or will kill you, and there are other people watching, you must die, even for the minag. Why? Because then, it's a chilul Hashem. Then it's a chilul Hashem, you're not allowed to desecrate Hashem's name, it's better off you die than desecrate Hashem's name. So, this is worse than all sins. Now, in essence, 
here we see that it's not so pashut. It's not so simple that uh, for this yes, for this no. There's more details to it. Yes, Lashonara is, is more evil than all of them. Yes, because Lashonara is just purely doesn't give you any pleasure whatsoever, whereas the other things do give you pleasure. Well, in essence, you are giving up your life for Lashonara. When you say Lashonara, you are giving up your life. You're giving your Allah Abba. The Rambam Pusik Lalachar, and he says, somebody that, had, that says Lashonara, it's a, uh, can potentially have Lashonara, but that's assuming he only has, you know, he only said it, uh, you know, rarely. But because, of course, the Rambam says, because, of course, someone that says Lashonara on a regular basis has no share of the world to come. Like, it's not even a question. He says, this is not what we're talking about. We're not talking about the, 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 the woman that talks Lashonara every day on the phone to her friends or at the, uh, at the cafeteria with all the, 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 the colleagues. No, no, we're not talking about that. He says, somebody that said Lashonara could potentially have Olam Abba. But somebody says Lashonara all the time, of course he doesn't have Olam Abba. He is killing himself. Yeah, but, but, this is, but so if somebody puts a gun here and says, go say Lashonara about somebody, mm-hmm. what do you do? Do you say it or do you just get shot? Well, obviously, you're a noose at that point. You're a noose. You're a noose. You're not a, it's not a cardinal sin to the extent that you're a noose. You're not, anyone that listens to this Lashon Ara knows that you're, it's going against your will. It's not, it's not a, uh, uh, no one's going to take it seriously. No one's going to believe what's being said simply because there's a gun in your head. That's why you shouldn't hang out at the projects where there's a lot of guns. You should hang out in a normal neighborhood where there's no guns. Hang out, you know. Why I went to high school was the projects. There's a lot of guns over there. It's poor Richmond High School. Lots of lots of guns over there. Some guys even brought guns to school. Don't hang out over there. Hang out where you hang out, which is Hashem, a much better neighborhood. There's no guns. No one's gonna put a gun to your head and tell you to say Lashonara. And most people that have guns, they don't know what Lashonara is either. Next question. Ask questions that matter to your life, not hypothetical. Can. Um, and you save a life of a Jew, yes. Now, what, what if it's an Anju? What if it's an Anju? Okay. Hazako Baru. The Akut Yosef, Akut Yosef says that if it's a Jew, of course you have to save their life. If it's a, if it's a uh, non-Jew, you still should save their life because chas v'shalom, even though you're not obligated to to the same extent, you still need to do it because chas v'shalom, other people see that you're not willing to violate Shabbat for non-Jews, then they're not going to violate Shabbat for you. And this goes into the medical field. It could hurt Ami Israel. So the guy says, listen, I'm a Jewish doctor. I'm not going to violate Shabbat unless the patients you're sending me on Shabbat are Jewish. So what happens? The non-Jewish doctor that's also very good and perhaps even better than the Jewish doctor says, well, I'm not showing up on Shabbat and I'm going to show up and not help the Jewish people. So then you're putting the entire nation at risk and therefore we're all obligated to violate Shabbat for whether it's a Jew or a non-Jew. Now, if the person is a known heretic that's an enemy of Hashem, like this Jacob guy, you don't have no obligation to save him at all. You can let him die. 
you can let him die. You don't have to violate Shabbat for him at all. Why? Because he's an enemy of Hashem. What if he goes to Shuwab for you saving him? At that point, he's an enemy of Hashem. If he does Tshuva at that point, he says, I'm doing Tshuva, then you save him. But if he hasn't done Tshuva, if he still says in his deathbed that all the garbage, the filth that comes out of his mouth continues to spew out, you tell him, Chazaku Baruch for all the things you were, you say all the questions you had for Hashem, you're about to meet him very soon. Enjoy. Enjoy your deathbed. You have no permission to violate Shabbat for him. Why? He's an enemy of Hashem. A non-Jew is not necessarily an enemy of Hashem. That's why also you should know that if, this is scary, but I said this in a shiur in Miami a year or two ago, and I think the crowd almost had a heart attack. Hope Maybe one day we'll make a clip out of it. I don't remember when it was. The Rambam, that if a idol worshiper touches wine that's uncooked, just lifts it like I lift this cup, and the, and the wine is open, it's now considered yain nesich. Yain nesich means wine for idol worship. You are not allowed to drink that wine. You're not even allowed to give that wine to your dog. In case you have a drunk dog that likes wine, you're not even allowed to give it to him. Meaning you cannot benefit from this wine in any way, shape, or form. You must destroy it. The only thing you can do with idolatry or the sacrifices of idolatry or anything related to idolatry is destroy it. Okay? That's the only thing you're allowed to do with with such wine. Now, if a Christian touches your wine, you must destroy it. If a Jew that violates Shabbat, he drives on Shabbat on a regular basis, he smokes on Shabbat on a regular basis, he plays on his phone on a regular basis on Shabbat. He violates Shabbat on a regular basis. He touches your wine. Your wine is also considered, again, just like it's a wine of idol worship. But he's not idol worshiping. He's not a Christian. He's a Jew. But he's just a Jew that's Mored B'Malchut. He goes against Hashem. Doesn't matter. According to Allah, Yilchot Shabbat, chapter 30, last Allah, Rambam says that a Jew that violates Shabbat is considered 100% an idol worshiper. So he is considered the same thing as a Christian or uh, that worships J.C. Penny, or as a Hindu guy that worships a rat or a cow or a motorcycle or Donald Trump or whatever. Now, you got it so far? Now what about if some Noahide comes and touches your wine? He believes in God. What happens if not a Noahide? It's easy to get a Noahide. What happens if an Arab, terrorist, Mustafa from Al-Qaeda, comes, he says, let me see your wine. Shakes it a little bit. What do you do? Allah is, it's perfectly fine. You're allowed to drink it. Allah is, you're allowed to drink the wine that Mustafa, the terrorist, shook. Why? Because Mustafa may be a terrorist, Rasha. But he's not an idol worshiper, like the Christian or the Mechalel Shabbat Jew. 
you're allowed to drink that wine because he is not an idol worshiper. Which means, Rabotai. Which means, this, this will show you where we're at right now in this generation. Your brother, your cousin, your father, your sister, your mom, whoever you know that's a violator of Shabbat, that's a Jew, is worse than a terrorist in the eyes of Hashem. It's not just worse than murder. He's worse than a terrorist in the eyes of Hashem. Do you understand? Because if the terrorist, touches the wine, we can still drink it. But if the Mechalel Shabbat touches it, we can't drink it. That's how low a Jew goes if he violates Shabbat. If that doesn't explain you, if that, if that doesn't shake your neshama to go out there and do tshuva, to go out there and get other people to do tshuva, you probably died already. You're an olam half of you. You're not here. You're not alive. There's something wrong with you. Because to me, when I heard this the first time, it shook my neshama. Shook my neshama. Why? To say that a murderer is worse than a mechalel Shabbat, it's true. A murderer, according to the Torah, is worse than a mechalel Shabbat because the fourth commandment and the ten commandments is chilul Shabbat. The, the sixth commandment is murder. So we know based on weight, we know based on the sin and so on, and based on the punishment of a mechalel Shabbat has no share of the world to come. And a punishment of a murderer, he still has a share of the world to come. He has genom, but he has a share of the world to come. So we see based on the punishment that murder is not as bad as Chilul Shabbat. But that is still tough to grasp. Why is it tough to grasp? Because how many of us really know murderers? And if you know him, why are you hanging out with him? Why are you hanging out with murderers? What's the matter with you? Eventually you're going to become a murderer then. But how many of us know Mechal Shabbat? You, you don't invite the murderer to your dinner. You don't invite the murderer to your kid's birthday party. You don't invite the murderer to, to, to play chess with. You don't invite him. But the Mechalel Shabbat, come, Achi, I love you. Come, bring your kids. My kids will play with your kids. Let's do it. Let's start something together. So if you really care about this Mechalel Shabbat, tell him, Achi, I love you, but you're worse than a terrorist right now, according to Hashem. I love you. I'm telling you, Abiku, because to me, I love you. Hashem also loves you, but your status right now is worse than Al-Qaeda. Why would you want to stay that way? Why would you want to torture your neshama that way? Why? You, what does the neshama do to you that you're torturing her so much? Do you understand? So this is the type of stuff that Jews need to understand. You know somebody, it's a Mechalel Shabbat? Help him. Don't let him stay a spiritual terrorist. Don't let him stay a spiritual terrorist because that makes you a terrorist. You let them stay that way, you're, you're a terrorist just like them. Now if you can't convince them, or you don't have the ability, or you don't have the boldness, or whatever it is, I'll do it. Just send them my lecture and make sure they watch it. And one idea that will have special siyat nishmaya, and then I'll let you guys go home because I know all of you guys are tired. One idea that I think is brilliant that I recommend for everyone to do that one of my students, Baruch, from Georgia, actually reminded me of and told me about that he's doing it now. It's mamash a brilliant idea. You want people to do tshuva? You have to understand, they were you used to be. There were I used to be, meaning they're at a place right now where you tell them, listen to this rabbi, automatically they have like a do not enter. They have already an alarm in their mind. Rabbi, not interested. 
So you send them a shield Torah, they're already not interested. You tell them a shield Torah that's three hours, they're like, what, do you want to kill me? Just kill me instead. Just kill me instead. So what do you do? What's the trick? Now, to give them a CD, not everyone's going to listen to a CD. To send them a link with a short lecture, not everyone's going to listen to it. So what do you do? What do you do when you have a special event for your daughter? What do you do when you have a special event for, for, for your son? What do you